Data is dead. Next Gen is dead. Star Trek is dead. I wish I were dead. <laughs> this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Nobody needs me. I need a sample of your blood. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we need a sample of your blood. I approached this week's show with a heavy heart, because I always knew this day would come, as soon as I had the bright idea to do all the Star Trek movies. Because our Star Trek Film Vault series has now reached Star Trek Nemesis, the tenth movie, the end of a generation, and the nail in the coffin. (laughs) With me to barrel into this barrel of fun is my own brother, Mr. Scott Butler, Scott I can't even come up with a question from this movie to ask you this time. What do you think of that? I have no answers about this movie, so I guess that pretty much fits. Well, this might be a short one. You say that every episode, and then it winds up being three hours. Yes, I've given up making that prediction in earnest. And yet you just made it ten seconds ago. Not in earnest. Well, now we're going to argue about the definition of earnest? Let's not. What the hell did I sign up for? (laughs) (laughs) There's a good question. (laughs) Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. That was our very special guest. Our first from the uh, PWO side of the PWOPTBN Podcast Network, Mr. Stephen Graham. Stephen, what the hell did you sign up for? I don't know. Um, I had completely forgot about this movie. This is one of these movies I even forgot about when it came out, and I didn't even see it in theaters, and I I can see why. After watching it, I just finished it like 10 minutes ago, so uh, I'm fresh and, uh, I guess, ready to talk about this. I guess we all are. Uh, Since you're new on the show, why don't don't you give a little bit of general background? Where are you coming from on Star Trek as a fan, and how does that bring you to Nemesis? Well... It wasn't like camping as a kid. Next Generation was on all the time. So that was kind of the first show I watched. Uh, And I got really into that. And then Deep Space Nine really became my show. uh, The one I watched from the beginning to end. And it was my favorite uh, by far. Voyager I kind of went in and out on. And Enterprise I kind of gave up on. And I don't think I've ever gone back to the original. Uh, But I love all the movies. And uh, yeah. uh, Nemesis was, uh, oh, you know. A weird, no wonder they rebooted the series, really, after that. <laughs> well, we'll get there. Um, but yes, we are checking in in the year 2002, where the franchise was in somewhat of a different place than it was when we checked in a couple of times before. Yeah, by 02, it was generally on its way down. DS9 was over, Voyager was over. They hadn't done a next-gen film in four years, which was the largest gap between Trek movies since there had been Trek movies. Enterprise had premiered in the year before. Enterprise was in its second season by now, but it was... Many people saw it as a disappointment. 
that obviously wasn't a universal opinion, but many people were disappointed in that series, and that series was not getting the sort of ratings that Paramount wanted for a Star Trek series to anchor their UPN television network. So, in a lot of ways, the franchise was decidedly on its way down at this point. Yeah, there was just a general sense, if, if I recall correctly from back in the day, that the whole thing was just old and tired. That was a lot of people's opinions. Well, they kind of did everything, right? Like, they, they've they done all the movies with all the various things. In DS9, they they had the big war show. Uh, Voyager was all over the place. Enterprise was now in the past, which was still the future. So, like, they were kind of tired, and they've kind of done everything at that point. They also went in a weird direction on this one with, like, we want a new director and a new, like, look for the movie as opposed to kind of, you know, going with the same people who've been doing the other movies too. So well, like, we, I guess they were thought this would be a big shot in the arm. <laughs> we talked about this with a couple of the other movies where especially generations, not as much first contact, although it's all the same people in first contact, but they got a lot of criticism for being a television production, trying to make a movie. There was a lot of criticism along those lines about Generations, and then the same people were involved in First Contact, and most of the same people were doing Insurrection. This is the movie where they really went outside of that. They brought in John Logan, they brought in Stuart Baird, they brought in all of these movie people to make a big movie. And they tried very consciously to make it a big movie. And I think you do see that in some of the general vibe of the movie. At least a little more than Insurrection. This movie has significant issues, and we're going to talk about some of those. But I feel like it's still trying. That's an interesting point. And maybe this is the right time to go into this until we talk about some other aspects, but what the fuck, we don't really have structure to some of these shows, so I'm going to go ahead anyway. I got the feeling throughout this movie, sort of two things jumped out at me. One was that... This movie seemed to be made more for the people making it than for the audience. And secondly, that nobody really seemed to be taking anything seriously. Either the actors or the characters. Everything in this movie, it almost... <laughs> I hate to draw this parallel, but it feels kind of like this podcast. Where we're mostly trying to entertain ourselves. And if anyone else is entertained by that, well that's great. This movie, everyone's just sort of jokey, Picard's jokey... With the funeral, there's that whole Argo sequence where nobody's taking anything seriously. Nobody even mentions the Prime Directive in this first contact with this alien culture. Picard makes a speech before where he says, I've made first contact with 23 different alien species. This is number 24. He drives his dune buggy right into their midst and then starts <laughs> shooting phaser bolts at them. That's how you make first contact now? That's even worse than Zephram Cochran introducing the Vulcans to loud rock music and rock cut whiskey. And even when he goes to beam down, there's that scene where Riker says, you know, you're the captain, you should stay up here on the ship. And Picard gives his reason for overruling that guideline. Oh, I want to try out the Argo. And Riker, rather than saying, well, maybe because you want to try out the new equipment isn't the best reason to dodge this regulation. Riker instead just sort of grins and goes, oh, okay. No one's, no one's taking their duties seriously. Can we ask about that for a second? The whole captain's supposed to stay on the ship and he's not supposed to go on away missions. Like, that was there in the TV series. But, like, whoever made this movie 
thought it was the most important part of the Riker Picard relationship, which it <laughs> wasn't. But like they kept harping on it throughout the movie over and over again. Like one of his last words to him is like, "Oh, uh, you know, make sure you're number you're number one. Uh, you ignore him when he tells you you can't go on a mission." Like, am I missing something? I haven't watched the show in a while, but the whole show is not constantly harping on that. There are a lot of references in this movie to things from early in the TV show. You know, Riker mentions meeting Data in the pilot at one point, and they harp on this idea that the captain can't go on away missions, which is something that they didn't really talk about that much after maybe the first couple seasons. You know, Picard would just send Riker as a matter of course, because he's the guy you send. That's why his character is there on the show. That's why he's there on the ship. But... They brought that back explicitly a lot more here. Ridiculously so. Well, that's one of the first conversations Picard and Riker have when Riker first gets on the ship in the pilot. Yeah. The, that Picard says, well, one of the reasons I chose you to be my first officer is because when you were the first officer of the hood and you wouldn't let Captain DeSoto go on an away mission and the captain said, no, I'm going to go, and you stood your ground and said, no, you're too important to risk on an away mission. You should stay on the ship and remain in command. And the reason I chose you is because you stood up to your captain like that. So that, like Glenn said, this is explicitly calling back to like some of the very first scenes of the series. Not just early seasons, but like the first scene that those two characters had together. Well, yeah. here's the thing. Uh, I, I read the Wikipedia page, and a lot of the complaints from the cast of the movie uh, was that they didn't think the director knew anything about Star Trek, never watched the show. Um, oh, no, he totally the, didn't. The writer did. Okay, the writer. But, like, it feels like this movie, whoever wrote it, whoever directed, whoever was in charge, had only, like, seen the pilot, and that was it. <laughs> That's one of everybody's comments about Stuart Baird. Yeah, they brought him in because he was a movie director, and specifically an action movie director. He only made a few movies, and his previous movies were U.S. Marshals and Executive Decision. Ooh, get the big guns in there. Right. So well, those weren't bad movies. Those were both fine. I'm sure they were fine, standard, late 90s action thrillers. And this was a fine, like... It's not a Michael Bay movie. It was all right. Right. Well, we were located in, in, in 2002 here, and yet this movie feels like a decent 90s action thriller. Yeah. Surprisingly so, going back and watching it after more than 10 years. I would argue with the word decent. Yeah, I, well, maybe that's a discussion to wrap up the whole show, but after not having seen it since 2002. Yeah, I, this is the second time in my life I've seen this movie. Yeah, it might have <laughs> been the third for me. Yeah, it might be the second or third for me, too. Because I know we saw it at the theater, probably opening night, definitely opening weekend. Yeah, op definitely opening weekend. And then I could swear that we got it on DVD and showed it to our mother. And I, I think you fled the room for that one. I might have stuck around with her. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if that happened, I was not involved. Right. Yesterday is the second time in my life I've seen this movie. The first time was, like you said, opening weekend, if not opening night. And the second time was yesterday. Right, but this is absolutely the first time I've seen this movie since it came out on home video way back when. And 
since then I had had this memory of it being awful, and that was like my only memory of it. Just it's it's the last next gen movie, and it's awful, and it was so awful that they had to close up shop, and it was so awful that it hastened the demise of the franchise. And coming back to it now, especially after we just, not too long ago, spent two and a half hours whining about Insurrection in the podcast for that show, I found Nemesis surprisingly decent in some respects. And I know that's going to be too much praise for you, but I feel like, on an absolute basis, it really isn't that much praise. I found it to be surprisingly not as awful as I remembered. But everything else you just said is still true. It still hastened the demise of the franchise. It still put the final nail in the coffin of the next generation. It still was so bad that it prompted everyone to just give up and close up shop. All that is still true. It's not as awful as I remember, but it is still pretty awful. It's more confusing than awful. Like... There's various chunks, and, like, I've seen all the Next Generation shows, I've seen all the Deep Space Nine shows, I've seen all the movies. There's parts of this I don't think I understood. <laughs> like, the whole ending sequence and stuff, where they're just fighting and another ship comes in and all this stuff, and, like, all of a sudden the, uh, the Picard clone, uh, spoiler alert, starts trying to kill Picard instead of trying to take his blood to save his life. And Picard's like... He says he clues in on what's going on, but he doesn't explain it to us. He just goes over there and kicks his ass. He doesn't tell us why he's changed his mind or anything like that. And I, I just don't get what the hell happened at the end. The last 20, 30 minutes was just weird to me. Let's get into that Picard Shinzon story a little bit, and we'll work back around to the end of that story. Okay. Now, we've got Tom Hardy here, who is, by now, famous for being in Chris Nolan movies. And, and Mad Max. And Mad Max. Where, I know it's been more than ten years, but I see no physical resemblance. <laughs> just well, the voice. No, because when he was bad, he was this, like, big hulking guy, and as Shinzon, he's this tiny little skinny dude. Yeah, he's a scrawny dude in a purple leather S&M outfit. Yeah, those Riemann outfits are really fucking stupid. The, the like, with the shoulder flares, not even shoulder pads, which you could try to or make an argument for, but just flares coming out of the shoulder and these like plastic cloaks. Those outfits make no sense. Either for an oppressed worker class working in mines or for the warriors that they're said to be. Plastic cloaks with shoulder flares make zero sense for either of those identities. So, uh, in Wikipedia here, it says, The makeup team sought to make Hardy look more similar to, to Stewart by creating latex prosthetics created from molds of the later's face. These included numerous versions of noses and chins, in order to reduce the visible size of Hardy's lips, a fake scar was added. So they, they made him look different than what he actually looks like for this movie. Yeah, I noticed the scar where Shinzong keeps saying, you know, I was thrown into the slave mines and beaten and starved, and then I was thrown into the war, and I had to fight in the war, and all these years as a slave, and then all these years fighting as a warrior, and he comes out of it with one little scar on his lip. 
Yeah. Otherwise unblemished. And also, they did manage to manufacture a reasonable resemblance to Patrick Stewart, I thought. Really? The, no- the nose and the chin and, and the f- facial structure they wound up with after however many prosthetics they put on his <laughs> face. They did have a reasonable facial resemblance. They could have been cousins or brothers or something. So I thought that was they did a good job from that angle. Yeah, but the problem is, I, I don't know, did you have this when you first watched it, if you can think back? Like, when did you realize he was a clone? Like, when they said in dialogue. <laughs> yeah, but like, there's a scene where they reveal the lights, and Picard's giving him this look, and it's all dramatic, and they have the dramatic music. I think we're supposed to realize it then, but I sure as hell didn't the first time I watched it. It took till they explained it later. Well, that scene had the whole thing with their uh, genetic hearing disorder yeah and it was just like the first time you watched that at least for me it was like this is fucking weird like what the hell is happening yeah see i didn't really have that experience of having it revealed in the movie because in 2002 i was big into script websites and so i got the script for this movie when it leaked several months or maybe a year even before the movie opened Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I knew that going into the movie that Shinzon was going to be Picard's clone. I had heard, I hadn't read the whole script, but I had heard that. Maybe I heard it from you, I don't know. But I knew that that going in, so that wasn't as much of a surprise to me. But yeah, I wouldn't have understood it. I mean, maybe once they start talking about I have your same hearing disorder, and I hear the same as you, and I feel the same as you. I don't know if I would have gotten it then. I probably wouldn't have gotten it until Crusher said, he's a clone of you. Yeah. Which to me is bad storytelling, bad directing, bad acting. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's not, like, they have the music in there, like, you're supposed to clue in then. I think they set that up as if you're going to immediately see the resemblance between them, which I don't think the resemblance is that good, where the first time you look at Tom Hardy, you go, oh my god, he looks like Patrick Stewart. I don't think they did that good a job of the resemblance, but at least they don't keep you in suspense. It's like literally the next scene where Crusher yeah. says, quote, he's a clone of you. So they don't, like, depend on you recognizing him or string you along for 20 minutes, not really knowing one way or the other. They do just say it to make sure that you know it. You know what they should have did? There's a scene later on where Picard holds up an old younger picture of him, and he's like, do you remember this guy? To Crusher, because, you know, they were friends when he was about that age. They should have done that at the fucking wedding. You could have saw a picture of Tom Hardy, and then you would have clued in later. Yeah, then when you see Tom Hardy, you know that's a younger Picard. That would yeah, yeah. that would have helped. It would have helped. <laughs> well, of course, we Good have thought. the uh, most important thing in Picard's life returning, and that's his photo album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, this isn't the part of the podcast we talk about it yet, but it's another appearance of the maroon jumpsuit from Wrath of Khan. Yes. We thought we'd seen the last of them, or I thought we'd seen the last of them, in Star Trek Six, and then they popped up again in Generation, and I said, well, I was wrong, but now, no, now we still haven't seen the last one, because here they are in Nemeshit. It's pretty safe to say this time, although, who knows what'll go on with the new TV series. <laughs> yeah, there's a new movie, too. You never know. Yeah, but with the number of new outfits they introduce in those movies, I don't think there's going to be a rerun from Wrath of Khan. Oh yeah, there's like half a dozen new outfits in all of these latest movies. 
Do we know anything about the new series? Is that set in the original Star Trek? Or There are rumors. There isn't anything like announced or confirmed, but there are rumors that it's going to be like an anthology show where each season is in a different era on a different ship with a different cast, and that the first season is going to be between the beginning of Generations and Next Gen. Well, it would be interesting. Yeah. So that immediately got people's hackles up like, hey, an entire TV series with the maroon uniforms. <laughs> um, but that's that's still just a rumor. They don't they don't have any premise or casting or anything announced yet. I wouldn't want to place any of the deficiencies of the Picard Shinzon storyline on the acting because watching the movie just recently, I felt like the scenes between Tom Hardy and Patrick Stewart where they're just talking about the issues that their characters have are the best scenes in the movie. Like, those are the scenes that actually work. I'll lay some of the blame on the acting. Really? I don't think either of them acted very well in those scenes. Really? I Tom? think this is Picard's worst acted of all the movies that he's done. Oh, yes, absolutely. I would agree with that. I'm not sure. Well, the problem for me is that, like, all the other movies, Picard gives this great soliloquy. And he doesn't get anything like that here. All those scenes with Shinzon, Patrick Stewart, it, it seems like he's only like halfway trying. And that's kind of what I was referring to earlier when I said this movie seems more to entertain the actors than the audience. Like, Patrick Stewart was into the Argo scene, and Patrick Stewart was into the Scorpion scene, where, again, that even the characters don't seem to be taking this seriously... Picard decides that even though he can't read the language the control panel is in and has never flown this thing before, he's the one to fly it through a hallway rather than the guy with android-level reflexes who actually understands the language the control panel is in. Again, even the characters don't seem to be taking this shit seriously. But in all of those Shinzon scenes where he's not flying a ship through hallways or riding around on a dune buggy or whatever, Patrick Stewart only seems to be about halfway trying. And Tom Hardy's acting as Shinzon is just weird from start to finish. I don't know if it's a particular angle he's taking on the character or if that's what Stuart Baird told him to do, but it's just fucking weird. I think there is a little bit of weirdness there. I think it comes from Tom Hardy trying to make the best of the kind of shifting priorities of his character. And that I'll place on the writing. His character kind of lurches from goal to goal to goal over the course of the movie, where sometimes he's kind of play-acting like he really does want to use his newfound position as Praetor of the Romulan Empire to, you know, make some sort of peace with the Federation, which he's trying to bluff Captain Picard, and that's fair enough, but he does seem genuinely invested in that for a scene. And then he does some more generic sometimes a little more boring action movie villain stuff, where now I must put my nefarious plan into effect. And, you know, he really tries. I think Tom Hardy is really, really trying to make the best of what he can with the character that he has. The most credit I'll give him is that the deficiencies in the performance may be the fault of the director and not him. Yeah, I would, I would go with that. I also want to give a little bit of credit to those dialogue scenes with the two of them alone because I feel those are 
the closest that a lot of these next-gen movies have come to the tone of the TV show, where, you know, it's dialogue between some characters figuring out a moral conflict. They're exploring this, or trying to explore, this whole nature versus nurture, mirroring aspect of their characters, and... I, I want to give that some credit, because that's the kind of conflict they would explore on the show. That's not, you know, super, super generic and super bland because of the idea that circumstances can shape anyone. I see what you're saying, that the idea is more close to some of the stuff that you did on the show than the more action-based stuff from the last two movies. And I'll agree that far, the idea behind it, or maybe not even the idea behind it, but what they could have done with that idea is more like some of the stuff from the TV show. The execution is so bad, though. It feels so forced. It is in some ways, yeah. The writing in those scenes is bad. The acting in those scenes is bad. I'm thinking of the dinner that they have where Picard is just sort of a paternalistic prick. Where Shinzon is saying, like, I took over so that I could try to avenge my people, to rescue my people from their slavery, and, and build a better life for the Remans, and now I want to make peace with the Federation. And Picard's just like, well, you have a lot of work to do if you want to earn my trust, young man. You know? <laughs> it's almost like, watching that scene, I could totally see Shinzon walking out of that dinner saying, well, fuck that old man! I'm gonna blow his ship up! And then later... They have other scenes together when Shinzon kidnaps Picard and they have that conversation where they're like, I'm a mirror, well, I'm a mirror for you too. That isn't really written that great and that's one of the scenes where Shinzon's line delivery is just really fucking weird and it detracts in the scene. And then Picard sort of tries to counter argument by saying, I'm a mirror for you too. But even Patrick Stewart delivering that line just sounds like tired. Like, he'd rather be anywhere other than delivering this line on this movie set. I'm a mirror for you, too. And then there's no follow-up on that. He doesn't explain how he's a mirror, give examples of how he could be a mirror, of how, you know, Shinzon could achieve what he's achieved, or, or Shinzon could make himself better the way he tries to make... He just delivers that line and then leaves it laying flat. So that's a deficiency in the writing and the acting. And it's not brought up later again. Well, then they have the other scene where Shinzon shows up as a hologram in the ready room, and that whole scene is just... There's nothing in there that's worth anything. And then they have their final fight on the bridge of the scimitar, which I have my own issues with that scene, which I guess we'll get into later. Oh, I know we will. But none of their interactions are any good. I mean, the idea of Picard meets a younger clone of himself, and the clone looks at Picard and thinks, what could I have been? And Picard looks at the clone and says, this kid has potential like I had potential. That is a premise that could have gone in a lot of interesting directions, and this movie just doesn't do anything with it at all. The writing about it is bad, the directing of the scenes is bad, and the acting in the scenes is bad. Everything is bad. It, it also kind of echoes Picard's concentration on legacies and family from generations as well, that there is now a young Picard, no matter how abused and corrupted and evil at this point. Uh, Stephen, what do you think? Am I giving this thing a, way too much credit? I think that's what they were kind of going for, but it didn't, like, hit 
it feels like everything they tried to do with this script, like I think it was a good idea in principle. It's just the execution of it is so surface level. Like they don't get into it at all. It's like, I'm a mirror for you and I'm a mirror for you. And then, you know, the guy dies at the end and his friend Data dies and then there's a, a, a new Data and they don't, you know, like that. some of that should have been brought up at some point, right? It just feels like it was thrown out there and then we had to move on. I think you're right that it's very surface level. They don't really delve into it as, as much as they could. I did notice Picard's line when he toasts to his family at the reception at the beginning of the movie because these shipmates of his are the only family he has left. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting touch. And Wesley Crusher was there. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you want to get into that aspect of it, a lot of people show up in this movie, again, sort of what I said earlier, that this movie is just to entertain the actors and not the audience. Wesley Crusher is there for like a split second toward the side of the screen, has no dialogue. There's a deleted scene, apparently. Yeah. Is not referenced at all. He's sitting there in a Starfleet uniform when he quit Starfleet seven years earlier. <laughs> He, he, he has no dialogue, he's not referenced, no one points him out, he's just sort of on the edge of the screen for, for a second or so while someone else is the focus, and there's no further explanation whatsoever. Worf is apparently back on the ship, serving as the tactical <laughs> officer again. No explanation of what happened to his diplomatic assignment on Kronos. No explanation of why he's back on this crew, back on this ship. Guinan, no explanation about why he's so against being naked while no one else is. Well, we could get into that. Guinan shows up at the reception, and she's the only one I think doesn't actually need an explanation because she doesn't show up as a crewman. She's not in a Starfleet uniform. She's just a guest at the reception, and that's enough of an explanation. If Crusher was in civilian clothes, that would have been fine. It's like, oh, he showed up for the reception, and that's it. What Steven is getting into, Worf is interesting in this movie because, first of all, he's the only one at the wedding with a hangover. Yeah. He drinks blood wine by the barrel. Yeah, he's a Klingon. Klingons can drink gallons of alcohol and not have a hangover. He has a hangover because of how much Romulan ale he consumed. Which is apparently not only more than Riker and Picard and Crusher and Troy and everyone else at whatever happened the night before, if it was like a rehearsal dinner or bachelor and bachelorette party or oh, whatever. Oh, good lord. Will Riker's stag party. Whatever <laughs> it was, Worf's the only one that came out of it with a hangover. And then he has these objections like, I don't want to be in this wedding. It's undignified for me to be part of this wedding. And it also sort of calls back, if you want to read way too much into it, you can look back at Worf and Riker's interaction in First Contact where they're sort of sniping at each other, where Riker makes a couple of jokes at Worf's expense, and Worf gives him a death glare, as if to say with his eyes, if you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. <laughs> and you can trace all of this back to the end of Season 7 of The Next Generation, when Worf and Troy started dating. And then something happened to end that relationship, and there's actually a novel about it, Triangle Imzadi 2, which supposedly covers the end of the Wharf Troy relationship. It's not a very good novel by my memory, but I've only read it once. Yeah, I know I read it, but I don't remember a single thing that happens in it. But I've seen fan analysis where people read into those interactions in First Contact, and they have almost no interactions together in Insurrection because Riker's on the ship and Wharf is on the surface. 
And then, here we go in Nemesis, Worf's the only one that drinks so much at the stag party that he winds up with a hangover, and he has all these vehement objections he wants to get out of this wedding ceremony. You can read into it that he's still bitter over the failure of his relationship with Troy at the end of Next Generation, if you want to read that into it. He just doesn't oh, want to go to the wedding reception on Beta Z because that's the one Loxana is going to be at. <laughs> but, like, he'd already moved on. He'd already been married to some the one, someone else that he fell in love with. Yeah, somehow like, that's... He has been... a new family with Martok. Like, it's not like he should be pining over Troy. Like, that makes no sense. Like I said, I've read fan speculation about it. It's not exactly a theory I subscribe to. I think it's sort of over too long a period of time to make sense, but people have theorized about that, and it fits some of the facts. Yeah. Obviously, his marriage to Dax would sort of argue against the idea that he's still bitter over losing Troy, but... Well, I think it's something that, like, whoever was directing this just thought it was funny. Oh, the Klingon's the one that's going to be drunk. Ha ha ha. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, the biggest just guy there is against being naked. Ha 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 ha. Like, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, exactly. That's something that happens in a lot of the movies and pretty often in the TV show where Worf is the first guy who gets beaten up by a new enemy because they have to establish themselves as being so badass they can beat up their security chief and so badass they can beat up the Klingon. Or, you know, he has these peccadillos that are the butt of jokes just because, oh, the big tough Klingon has a gorch. <laughs> or things of that nature. Yeah, but on the series, I mean, getting beaten up all the time just to establish that each new enemy is really strong and can beat up Worf, that's one thing, but all his peccadillos on the series didn't seem to be at his expense as much as the ones in the movies. He made you know, the, he, oh, the big tough Klingon likes prune juice. That's not nearly as demeaning as, oh, the big tough Klingon has a gorch, you know? <laughs> oh, well, only because he made that prune juice work. Well, yeah, but but it's a different kind of thing, you know? Oh, the big tough Klingon is scared to get naked at the wedding, you know? The, well, the like, ones let's in the look at them shaming him, too. Like, they're completely like, oh, you're you're muscular, you shouldn't, you know, be afraid or whatever. Like, maybe he has other reasons. They're, they're like, completely, like, peer pressuring him. Well, I think we've established that Picard has very, very little sympathy for emotional distress amongst his <laughs> underlings. Ooh, want to get into that now? Because we saw that in Generations when Data was in emotional turmoil because he had emotions. He, this was like his second day with emotions and he couldn't really handle them. And so he couldn't deal with this emotional turmoil because it was the first time he had ever had emotional turmoil. And Picard just sort of browbeat him into, shut up, sit down, do your duty. <laughs> in this movie, when Troy is raped mentally by Shinzon and the Viceroy, and she is dealing with this trauma of the attack, and she says, I can't serve right now, I'm in trauma, and Picard says, no. And he says, it's not just that he says, no, you must continue to serve anyway. He says, in these exact words, if you can endure more of these attacks, I need you now more than ever. Yeah, that was one of the lines I was like, what the fuck? Oh <laughs> my on? god. And then, like, as we were talking about earlier, that's dropped for an hour. Like, she's raped, and they just move on, 
and it's not really mentioned until later on she like mind rapes the other dude but like it's just completely forgot yeah she tries to mentally revisit her trauma to play ouija board with the targeting computer yeah but like in between there it's just like ignored right yeah they don't bring it up in between no yeah, no, no until until Troy has to reach back through the psychic link and play Ouija with Worf's hand. Like, was that supposed to be empowering or something? Was that supposed to be her getting back at the Viceroy? Yeah. She says, remember me, through the yeah, link. Yeah, big revenge. Yeah, like, that's supposed to be a, a, you know, victim's revenge fantasy, which just really comes across, because it is, as... A man writing and a man directing a woman suffering this sort of trauma. Yeah. And what's what like what really offend like offended me watching that part was like the movie started off so well. They welcomed ladies, gentlemen, and members of that are transgender. I was like, wow, this is you know good for that. Like it's very topical. They're very on the ball here. You know, it's thirteen years ago, and they're you know they take into account that. And then it just goes to shit later on. (laughs) Yeah, well, we've been talking about the treatment of Counselor Troy in all of these movies, and she doesn't really do that well in any of them. Well, in Generation, she crashes the ship. In First Contact, she gets drunk. In Insurrection, her boobs are firming up. And here in Nemesis, she gets raped, and then she crashes the ship again. Yeah. Why did she get raped? It's just because... That was the first woman he ever saw? I guess. He says that she's the first human woman that he's ever seen. Yeah, he is creeping on her immediately. Like, he asks to touch her hair. Yeah, that was weird. But, like, was that the whole reason? There was no, like, weird game plan at all, was there? No, I think that was just for his own... I don't even know what word I want to use there. But that, that was just his own thing. He, um... Like they said, she's the first human female that he's seen, and so... In a lot of ways, he's sort of emotionally stunted, I guess because he was raised as a slave in a slave camp. So that would result in some emotional stunting, I suppose. As he's raised by the other slaves in the slave camp, and he's never seen a human, because they're all Remen, and the overseers are all Romulan... So he does have a lot of issues related to that, which, again, they could have explored in an interesting way rather than, you know, this weird mental rape of Troy. Well, that aspect of Shinzon's backstory was the part that I thought was most interesting. You know, he kind of rises up as one of the Untermenschen to literally seize the means of production on Romulus because the main thing that Romulans produce, of course is political infighting and overly complex schemes. <laughs> we've, we've seen that throughout Next Gen and even DS9. So... Can we, can we take a minute to explain Shinzon's plan? Because I don't know if I 100% follow it. So why don't I try to go through his plan and you ex- like correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know how much I'll be able to explain in this, but let's go for it. Oh, jeez. All right. So... He found a data-like android created. Maybe lore. I don't know. Maybe another test subject. Well, and, it, it's, it's you know, B4 because Dr. Soong loved naming things. Okay. so you he know, found, one, one of the early prototypes. 
In the early versions of the script, that android was actually named B9. Yes, I remember they, that they one. They later decided to change the name to B4. So he either sorts out or accidentally finds this robot android. And then he modifies it, takes it apart, and drops it in a planet that he knows Picard is going to be passing. And then he rises to power. And because he knows Picard's passing, he requests that he sees someone from the Federation. So he had to know exactly where the Enterprise was so that they would pick up the android that he needed for his plan and that he himself would come to his planet. Well, he had it beam out this random, arbitrary, positronic signal, which is just completely made up for this movie, but that's how that goes. So that the Enterprise would be near the neutral zone, and then told the Federation, I want to open up peace talks, send a starship now, when he knew the Enterprise would be right by the neutral zone. And would have Captain Picard, this, you know, famous Federation captain and diplomat, who they might send to such a peace talk. How do you know? Because he, you, he was using the android before to figure out where all the ships were. So how do you know that Picard was close enough that he would see the pulse? My best guess on that would be that the Riker-Troy engagement and marriage would probably be not classified information. Like, maybe not, like, cover of Us Weekly News, but it would be notable and it would not be classified, so he would know, oh, they're getting married on Beta Z on such and such date, and so they have to travel from Earth to Beta Z, so they're going to go close enough to this planet at some point. He probably could have figured that out just from publicly available news feeds. What, they put a marriage announcement in the Federation newspaper? <laughs> well, Did know. Jake Sisko do a profile on the <laughs> wedding? Maybe, you know. Will Riker, longtime first officer of the Enterprise, who was on the mission to repair Zephram Cochran's ship, who was involved in the Federation Council scandal surrounding the Baku, you know, longtime first officer who has only recently finally agreed <laughs> to take a captaincy. You know, that way that would have been news of a sort. Probably something the Tal Shiar could figure out. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, it wouldn't be on, like, the cover of a gossip magazine, but it would be, you know, newsworthy, I suppose. Like, the name of the commander of CENTCOM during the Iraq War was generally known to people who watched the news. Yeah. If, like, the second-in-command of CENTCOM had married another officer in CENTCOM, that might have made the news. <laughs> okay. So he puts the robot into the ship, he assumes that they're going to put him back together so that he can get all the plans of where everyone is. And then he steals those plans, and he steals Picard to steal his blood, and then he was going to just go and destroy everyone. That, that's the plan, right? See, there's the turn that I don't get. Like, I don't understand how his plan after kidnap Picard and get all his blood so I can go on living... I don't know how that turns into, and then I'm going to destroy Earth. Well, I'm assuming destroy Earth was always part of the plan. As yeah. But just because the Federation are the Romulans' enemies... He hates the Romulans! He has that's to true. appease the Romulan military that supported his coup. Yeah, that's true. By delivering this fatal blow to one of their oldest enemies. That's why they're so mad that he's not going quicker to destroy the Federation. Exactly. 
he has to appease his supporters in the military who supported this coup and who help him stay in power. But first, he needs to get Picard's blood. <laughs> I guess that's why when Picard eventually escapes and Shinzon realizes, you know, shit, I'm actually not going to get his blood, that he doesn't seem to have much in the way of compunctions in activating the big scary weapon in the middle of this nebula instead of going and destroying Earth because if I'm going down, by God, I'm going to take the Enterprise with me. And so he might not yeah. get to destroy Earth, but maybe that's not something that he himself desperately wanted. Because what he should want, as the slave in the minds of Remus, is to destroy the Romulans. You know, maybe he should well, play into device in their star that would make it go supernova in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he killed the entire Senate and took over ruling the Empire. Yeah. That Let's may have that. sated some of his desire to destroy the Romulans. He killed their government and took it over. What I really don't understand is why he gives up trying to get Picard to save his own life. And then his line where he says some ideals are worth dying for. What the hell ideal is he dying for at that point? He's given up all semblance of ideals just for revenge against Picard for not being kidnapped. Yeah, his whole contrast with Picard is that he doesn't have the ideals that Picard has, and he doesn't seem to have much in the way of ideals at all. Well, he has revenge. When you're raised in a slave mine, you don't have the luxury of ideals. You're just trying to survive. Well, when you're raised in a slave mine, your ideal is someday I'm going to have, you know, revenge, like Stephen, you were just saying, on the people who were enslaving me. So maybe once he gets that revenge and takes over the Romulan government, he's kind of spinning around. I don't understand, and again, this is something the movie could have gotten into, and it might have been interesting, depending on how they did it. Given their track record, it may have just wound up being astonishingly stupid, but it has the potential to be an interesting idea. Why does Shinzon blame Picard for his existing? Like, he blames Picard for having been cloned by the Romulans. I get that, because Picard has this great life, he's been this famous captain, all this stuff, Shinzon's got all the same DNA, all the same blood, but he hasn't got that luxury, so he's been screwed. I'd be pissed at Picard, too, if we were the exact same, and he got such a great life, and mine's been shit. So he doesn't so much blame Picard for his circumstances, he's just jealous of Picard, that yeah. you got this cushy life and this legendary career, and I got beaten in the mines and thrown into battle. He resents him more than anything. Yeah, he's jealous of him, and that turns in... To resentment, jealousy leads to resentment, resentment leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to Thaleron radiation. Exactly. Because he totally buys in to everything he says about him being a mirror. That if Picard were raised in the circumstances that he was, he would be just as vicious, just as hateful, just as bent on revenge. And so, to see a version of himself that was raised in posh circumstances and has achieved a position of power in the almighty utopian federation, it just burns him. It tasks him, even. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's so much symbolism there that I think really could have been explored in a movie that was crafted better. I'll give it credit for having some of those ideas, and I'll give it credit for 
giving me a basis onto which to kind of imagine a better version of it, which I sometimes do with pieces of media. <laughs> we said about Insurrection that you could look at Insurrection and look at some of the ideas behind the story of Insurrection and imagine a much better movie that explored those ideas in a much better way. Nemesis is sort of both more and less than Insurrection. And in that I think the ideas are somewhat lesser, and yet the potential, the unrealized potential for interestingly exploring those ideas is so much more. At the same time, I don't quite think that you could really bite into those ideas in Nemesis as well as you could in Insurrection. And yet it, Nemesis does such a worse job of exploring those ideas than even Insurrection does. I think that's true in some respects. I mean, there are some interesting uses of the Star Trek canon and some interesting reversals that I think could have been built on. In Star Trek VI, the Klingons genuinely offered peace, and warmongering elements of the Empire and the Federation thought it was impossible and tried to undermine it. In Nemesis, Shinzon dangles peace as a front for his own warmongering, and the warmongering that the Romulan military, like you say, is demanding from him. And that's sort of a parallel to the end of The Last Generation that I think could have been very interesting in a better movie. All the stuff about the Romulan military's anxieties about their new Praetor, where he's almost like the reactionary person's fear of anyone from an oppressed class rising up and assuming leadership of an oppressor class, which you see over and over again in politics and in military things. <laughs> You know, there, there are all these sort of threads that I appreciate that they're there. I wish more had been done with them. I wish more had been done explicitly with them because I, I kind of feel like I'm reaching on some of these. Just a bit. Um, do you guys want to talk about B4? Because the fact that they were going to kill Data off at the end and then they introduced a new Data, doesn't that death feel very uh, shallow, very flat, because here, there's a new data already, so don't mourn too much. Yeah, well, that was one of the parallels. This movie is trying so hard to be the so Wrath of hard. Khan. It is trying. And, you know, it kills this beloved character from the show while offering an out, except the out that was offered in Wrath of Khan was one shot filmed in a pickup session that lasted for a couple seconds. You know, where Spock mind-melded with McCoy and said, remember. That was added after an, the initial filming block on the movie and just kind of stuck in for a couple seconds. Whereas in this movie, the seed that they're, oh, so skillfully and subtly planting for Data's resurrection in the next movie, turns out not so much, is the entire B-plot. Well, the, the death of Data, it's hard to judge the two against each other because the death of Spock was, like, something that w was already existent. Like, by the time I really understood, oh, Spock died in this movie, he had already been resurrected. Yeah. <laughs> so, that didn't really have that impact on me. The death of Data 
was, again, just something that was really stupid. And they did it at the behest of Brent Spiner. Brent Spiner says, you have to kill Data off. And Brent Spiner's most stated motivation, you can argue is this really his thing, but Brent Spiner's stated motivation for this is, Data is an android, Data doesn't age, I am aging, (laughs) therefore I can't play Data anymore. Therefore, you have to kill Data. And that was, I don't know if it was the sort of ultimatum that supposedly Leonard Nimoy made about participating in Rathacon, but that is something that Brent Spiner wanted and something he said and something he asked for. You have to kill Data in this movie because I'm getting too old to play an unchanging android. Which Um, I think is a stupid reason. Yeah, it's kind of a prosaic reason to kill him. But it doesn't matter because look at Harrison Ford. He demanded to be killed. Han Solo got killed off. And look how emotional and well that was. And then compare it to this death. Well, just like if they cloned Han Solo at the start of The Force Awakens and then you had a young Han Solo running around and then they killed Han Solo. Like that's what they did here. Well, well, a young Han Solo with developmental difficulties that are nebulously defined and very stereotypically acted. Well, just because Brent Spiner demanded they kill Data for a what I think is a stupid reason doesn't excuse the stupid way they decided to kill Data. Uh, usually when a beloved character of mine dies, I feel some emotions. I felt no emotions here. so I don't know what went wrong, but it, it did. Well, that whole scene doesn't work for me at all. Because Picard and Shinzon are fighting. Because Picard needs to blow up the Thaleron reactor. And Shinzon's trying to stop him from blowing up the Thaleron reactor. So the two of them are fighting. And, and, and they're fighting up the steps. And they're fighting right next to the radiation. And they're fighting on the other side of the room. And they're fighting and they're fighting and they're fighting. Finally, Picard wins. Shinzon dies. Picard wins the fight. He can finally shut off this reactor, blow up the reactor, whatever he's going to do to it, he's got like two minutes left on this countdown when he finally defeats Shinzon, and then he stands stock still, staring off into space and doing absolutely nothing for the next two minutes until finally Data gets there and beams him away and blows up the thing himself. And then Picard materializes back on the Enterprise bridge and continues standing stock still, staring into space, doing nothing for another minute or so. Yeah, see, I don't have nearly as much of a problem with that because I'm willing to buy into Picard just being stunned and traumatized because he starts to buy into all the mirror stuff that Shinzon is saying throughout the movie. And so he's basically seen himself... Raised in tragic circumstances and turned evil and corrupted and all this, who has, like, eviscerated himself on this long pointy stick that was in the ship for some reason? Whatever. Movie magic. Who decides, at the moment of his death, when he was trying to kill Picard anyway, after giving up on stealing all his blood with his, you know, Dracula friends decides that the way to do the most psychological harm is to grab the long pointy stick and pull himself even closer in the moment of his death. And so I grant that the character dynamics are not developed as much as they should have been, but I can give the movie that little bit of extra credit for being able to read into it to that degree that Picard is just stunned and he freezes. 
You know, a person freezes at various times. I freeze a lot. So, if they wanted to show that, they could have shown that. You know, he's stunned by this display, and so he, like, shoves himself away and stumbles back to get away from this display that Shinzon has made. Or even just he's stunned by this, and so he falls back against the wall and slides down into a seated position because his legs aren't holding him up anymore, and he's just in this state of shock, and so he falls over. They could have shown that. Instead, he just stands there and does nothing. It's like the writers couldn't come up with an idea. It's like, okay, Picard wins the fight, but we need to figure out an excuse for why he doesn't blow up the reactor before Data gets there. Uh, we don't have anything. Just have him do nothing and wait for Data. Again, if they wanted to show the thing that you're saying that they were trying to show, they could have actually shown that, rather than just do nothing. As in almost every other aspect of this film... They could have done something instead of the astonishingly stupid thing they actually did. Uh, Steven, what do you think of that whole fight and do you think it cheapens Data's sacrifice at the end? (sighs) The fight's weird because, you know, he's 25 years younger. This guy has risen up from being a slave who fought in the Dominion War and is such a badass. And he, like gets destroyed by Picard. That part is weird to me. But I think the biggest cheapen of Data's death was the fact that B4 is there at all. And he basically has a replacement. Um, That part just makes the death feel useless. The Picard fight, the fact the ship is completely destroyed, all this other stuff, I'm sure it has a little effect, but I think B4 is the biggest problem. When you kill off a major character... Their death is always going to feel hollow if it seems unnecessary. And it seems really unnecessary for Data to make that sacrifice when Picard is already there and he has two minutes with which to just pull out his phaser and fire. You know what the biggest problem is, though? We've seen that transporters will take two people if they're touching over and over again. I don't know why that thing could only take one person. Yeah, set your phaser to override and blow up, and then Data hops in Picard's arms as the transporter yeah. goes. Yeah, why doesn't he just pull a Jillian Taylor? Yeah. Much like the end of the Star Trek Voyager pilot, this entire thing makes no sense unless you conveniently ignore the existence of time-delayed detonation. Well, maybe that's why Troy is so distraught. Maybe that's why she's the only one who seems to be really distraught, because as the woman on the bridge, she's the only one who can actually cry. Maybe she realizes all this. (laughs) And and she's sitting there thinking, this is all so unnecessary. Well, she can sense emotions across space, right? She senses Picard in his trauma and anxiety or whatever's happening, and, and he's just frozen, and Troy is sensing this on the Enterprise bridge, just saying, you know, move, go, Endure more of these attacks! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Picard, for somebody that has absolutely zero sympathy for his crew's emotional distress, at least a little thing happens to him. He he just holds himself up in that ready room and lets everyone else take care of his duties. His brother dies in a fire. He's gone. Let Riker talk to Starfleet. I'm busy mourning. Data dies. Shinzon dies. Well, you guys take care of the ship limping out of this nebula. I'm going to go sit in my ready room and mope. 
You have to endure more of these attacks. You have to deal with your emotional crisis, even though you've had emotions for approximately eight hours. But me, I'm going to go sit in my ready room and be useless for a day or two while I deal with these traumatic events. Well, I think everyone in a midlife crisis has the right to... Nah, fuck it. (laughs) Now, all of that sort of brings up an interesting question. Does Data have emotions in this movie? Oh, of course he does, but the movie doesn't engage with it in the least little bit. He does? Where? See, I agree with Glenn more than I do with you, Stephen, because... Well, I'm sure he didn't turn them off. Well, I was paying... Like, I was paying. Like they forgot about it. They completely forgot about that part of the story. Well, I was paying attention to this because, again, reading, you know, fan interpretations of this, many people feel that somehow he doesn't have emotions anymore. Like, the chip has been deactivated, or the emotion chip has been destroyed, or something like that has happened where he no longer has the emotion chip by the time of this movie. And I think that theory is completely implausible. If he's supposed to not have emotions in this movie, nobody told Brent Spiner. Yes, when, when, he, when he sings at the wedding, he clearly shows emotions during his performance. When, when they're on the scimitar during their escape, and he finally gets that shuttle bay door open, he smiles at his accomplishment. Like, yes, I finally got it open. Uh, when he has to deactivate B4 because he's a security threat, he's very sad. He's whispering sadly at B4. That's the one example that loomed large in my mind when you brought it up. Yeah, yeah. so he's clearly showing emotions there. So I think it's obvious that he has emotions in this movie. And this is eight years after the chip was activated, because Generations of 94, and this is 2002, so he's had eight years to acclimate himself to all this. I don't think it's eight years in Star Trek time. Yeah, I think it is, actually. I I think... Riker's been a number two for 17 years or something? They say at the wedding reception, Picard says over and over, we've been together for 15 years. Oh they they hammer that home big in this movie because they're trying to gin up a lot of emotions about the generation's final journey, like they say in the tagline on the poster. You know, so they're taking, uh, to that extent, the real-world timeline. They're saying 15 years, 87 to 02. Wow. That doesn't seem right. Like, I, I uh, obviously that's what they're doing in the movie, but it doesn't make sense in my head that it took that long. Nemesis has a star date of 56844. So that is 17 years, I think. Wow. Or 16 years at least. Because the first season of Next Generation would have been star date 41, right? And this is 56, so that's 15 years. Yeah. So, so yeah, it does go, it's roughly analogous to calendar years. So, it's been eight years since Data first inserted the chip, and so he's going to be more emotionally mature now. He's going to be able to handle them more normally now. And so, I think this movie actually does a good job, a reasonably good job. It doesn't focus on them at all, it's not part of a storyline, but it does a reasonably good job of showing Data handling his emotions normally because they're a normal part of his life at this point except for the one line when Jordy asks data how do you feel about that and data matter-of-factly says i feel nothing well i think that's 
just like you or I might be asked about something and say, well, I don't have any particular feelings on that. You know, sometimes people don't have a deep emotional investment in something. It doesn't mean he doesn't have emotions in the movie. I think many people interpret the line to mean he doesn't have emotions. Maybe a lot of people I... do, but I'm going to prize the acting above that particular reading of one particular line that I think can very easily be read in a way that fits better. I just forgot that he had emotions watching this. <laughs> well, that's another idea. <laughs> Like, until you brought it up, I, I forgot that Data had an emotional chip. Because, like, in this movie, it just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a featured part of the story, right. And it was very specifically not addressed in Insurrection. And we've tracked the use of that through these movies, too. It, it's very, very slight, very, very matter-of-fact by the time of this movie. I think it is clear in at least those two scenes. It's probably in many of the others, too, but it's most explicitly when he's pleased with himself for when he gets the door open and he smiles at his accomplishment, and then the sadness that he shows in the scene where he has to deactivate before. I think those scenes show emotions. How, how about this? Do you think before has an emotion chip? I would say no. Because they say he's a prototype. Yeah. And we're getting sort of into arcane stuff here. Yeah. Not, not that arcane, but sort of more arcane than we generally get into. <laughs> Data didn't have emotions, and they said, be oh, wait a minute, actually. I may be wrong. Because Lore always Lore did. had emotions. Yeah. They didn't yeah. work right. They were sick and twisted, but he did have emotions. Exactly. And so Lore being... give Data the emotional chip? Lore took the emotion chip that Data was supposed to get, but he already had okay. a malfunctioning emotional programming of some sort. Yeah, so if B4 is a pre-Lore prototype, then he may have a prototype of Lore's twisted and evil emotions. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Oh, good. See, I'm trying to remember bits of Brent Spiner's performance as B4 as not enjoyable as it was. I'm trying to remember if there were any lines that he had as before that seemed emotional. He did seem worried at points. He was worried. He was confused a lot. He was confused a lot, but it wasn't just like confusion, like confusion, but it was also like worried about his confusion. He was worried about his lack of understanding. Yeah. He was, he was worried about his new circumstances he was worried when Data was about to deactivate him. Well, in, in some ways, he seemed to understand what he didn't understand. Like, the things that he wasn't processing and wasn't able to process were almost like known unknowns. Mm -hmm. and, and so he did kind of have this aspect to his character that he's sort of cast adrift in a world he's not able to understand until the novels and comic books after this movie that basically, like... Turn him into Data. Turn him into Data. And it's it's the whole resurrection of Data by erasing the existence of B4, which is an uncomfortable thing in a way. I don't know if that happens so much in the novels. I haven't read some of the more recent novels, so I don't know if it does. The earlier novels that came out, you know, in, like, the first five or eight years after Nemesis, in those series of novels... They very specifically did not turn B4 into Data. Really? But then in the pre-Star Trek 2009 comic book yeah, series, Data is resurrected. And in the backstory of Star Trek Online, 
Data is resurrected. Yeah. So I don't know if the novels later adapted to fold in that continuity or aspects of that continuity. But in the early days, immediately following Nemesis, and for like the first five years or so after that when they were writing, the authors and editors involved very specifically did not want to turn B4 into Data. It was their position that B4 is not Data. He may have some memory records that Data gave him, but that does not make him Data. Any more than Data is lol. Exactly. So, we have had sort of a far-ranging discussions of some aspects of this movie. We are going to take a quick break to listen to ads for wrestling podcasts. And we are going to come back and endure more of these attacks ourselves. Hopefully you will too, listeners, and we will see you on the other side. Nobody needs me. I need you at my side, now more than ever. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Kelly. Make sure you check out every episode of The Kevin Kelly Show right here on the Place to Be Nation. PlaceToBeNation.com, The Kevin Kelly Show. Every episode is a winner. At least we hope. Place to Be Nation is Justin Rosero here. In addition to The Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com. And we now offer them to you on two great feeds as well. On the Place to Be podcast feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on The Mothership, The Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines, main event, Mission Indie Possible, in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. Relive Wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We also have sports covered, too, with the Sports Lounge, the TJ McLoon Show, and NBA Team Podcast. On our brand new PTB Pop Podcast feed, we offer great shows such as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both feeds on iTunes and be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows are available on PlaceMation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments and more. Be sure to check out on the right-hand side of the site for details on how to support the site when you shop at Amazon and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro-wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave, Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We've got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Team's back again with Kelly and Marty Slees. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Nobody needs me. You are me! 
are back. Glenn here with Scott and Steven talking about the 10th Star Trek movie, Star Trek Nemesis, when it was all feeling a little tired and a little done. And let's get back into this with a category that I decided would be one of the topics, and that is the action nonsense in the movie, because I got the impression watching it that other than the big space battle at the end of the movie, all the other action sequences just felt completely shoehorned in because the director or studio or whoever wanted there to be an action sequence every X many pages in the script. And so they stuck in the completely gratuitous, stupid scene with the Argo. Suddenly Starfleet has a dune buggy with its own dedicated shuttle. And then they stuck in the hallway fight with Picard and Data on the scimitar where they steal oh, the scorpion fighter and fly through the hallways. And and so there, there are these action scenes that are just kind of shoehorned in. Uh, Steven, do you get the same impression? Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. And what bugged me about them is that you kept hearing about how awesome these warriors were, right? The, the Remans, they're supposed to be the most badass. They were at the front lines in the Dominion War. They kick ass, right? And then, like, Picard, like, shoots, like, six of them down by himself in that hallway fight. And they, they can't even stop Picard. Yeah, when he's carrying two phasers and shooting them both at the same time because he's so cool. You know, we, we've tracked this trend, Scott, through all the next-gen movies that they're turning toward more action and more battles and explosions and stuff and that's just super obvious this time well they're even hitting the nail harder on the head when they literally give picard a fast car to drive around like is that picard's midlife crisis or is that patrick stewart's midlife crisis and is patrick stewart's midlife crisis the cause for picard's midlife crisis well, that was one of the influences that he had on Insurrection. There was one note that he had in a memo. I don't remember if I got to it in the actual show, but he literally says, I don't think we need to be about the new life and new civilizations as much, although we still should boldly go. It reminded me, it makes me think of the old SNL skit of Star Wars tryouts with Burt Reynolds auditioning for the role of Darth Vader, where he tries to understand the motivation of the character of Darth Vader by asking, what kind of car does this guy drive? And in this movie, Patrick Stewart keeps wanting more action stuff for Picard, and in this movie, they literally give him a fast car to drive. They give him a fast car to drive, and then he gets the scorpion fighter scene, too. Yes, well, I, I've covered both of those scenes before. Yeah. My impression that they're more to entertain the actors than they are to entertain the audience. And they show that nobody's taking anything seriously. In Insurrection, they do all of their observation in a duck blind, a camouflaged duck blind, and invisibility suits to observe this one Baku village. In Nemesis, they apparently just throw the Prime Directive right out the window because they make first contact by driving their dune buggy around and firing phaser bolts at the people. Prime Directive? What Prime Directive? Well, we got a dune buggy to tool around on. And then in the Scorpion scene where you have one person who can speak the language that the control panel is written in 
and has Android-level learning speed and Android-level reflexes, and the other guy is the one that tries to fly the ship in a cramped hallway. Yeah, he literally just says, you know, what do you think this controller does? Okay, let's go. <laughs> Which, again, shows that even the characters don't seem to be taking this seriously. They're just out for jollies. The actors don't seem to be taking this seriously. They're just trying to entertain themselves. And, God, you said that the Enterprise in First Contact had big hallways you could battle the Borg in. They're flying a ship through the hallways of this thing. The Scimitar, by the way, I guess we'll get to design later, but the Scimitar is just this giant fucking thing. They have this, like, giant two-story entrance hall with a big theatrical staircase and a window the size of the Death Star gun for Shinzon to first meet Picard and the rest of the Enterprise people. This giant hall with this giant theatrical staircase. Why the fuck is that on a spaceship? And then the Scimitar Bridge that they show later is like three stories tall. <laughs> yeah, I'm not necessarily opposed to having a goodly amount of action in a movie, but it has to make sense somehow. It has to tie into the story somehow, other than, you know, they're lured to this place and they decide to take the dune buggy because Patrick Stewart wants to drive a fast thing and suddenly they're attacked by people. I mean, if this is supposed to be part of Shinzon's plan, he planted the parts of B4 there on a planet of... Mole men, or whatever the hell they were, on their own dune buggies, shooting at Picard. What if they, you know, hit him? You know, Shinzon's whole plan to steal his blood with his Dracula friends and get all his blood to survive kind of goes out the window at that point, doesn't it? I mean, it's just completely shoehorned in. Also, why do these aliens live in a Mad Max theme park? Well, one of the things we've talked about is the various lighting levels of these movies. Insurrection had all the scenes at the lakeside village that had all the warm, natural lighting. And in the Argo scene in Nemesis, it's just... The color is completely washed out. Yeah, the lighting is just completely blown out. It's just way, way, way bright. And way, way, way harsh lighting. Very, very harsh. And, I mean, it's a contrast, if you want to say that to all the shipboard scenes, and especially on the Scimitar, where everything is, is dark. Well, yeah, on the Scimitar, everything's really dark. They actually do light the Enterprise pretty well in this movie. It looks almost like a normal starship. They're able to light it so well. Except for Data's quarters, in the scene with B4 and Data's quarters. Data's quarters are so dark as hell. Yeah, I was wondering at various points whether the Riemann's sensitivity to light could be read as, like, a sly comment on how underlit the Enterprise-E was, and even the D in Generations. I mean, how <laughs> underlit these movies have been when, on the Enterprise, in Nemesis, they light it fairly well. Yeah, the Enterprise in Nemesis is probably the best-lit starship since Star Trek VI. Yeah. It, it, it almost doesn't look like the most depressing ship in the fleet to serve on. Yeah, but speaking of action sequences that are kind of gratuitous and kind of just thrown in for a couple reasons, there's also the uh, shipboard invasion during the final battle, where the Viceroy 
who is never named except in the novels or something. Yeah, he's such an important person in Shinzon's life that he never refers to him as anything other than the man who would become my viceroy. Yeah, or leads his, like, shock troops or whatever to board the Enterprise, and of course has to have a tedious fight with Riker because Riker has to get revenge for the whole mind rape thing. Oh, God, do we... I thought it was a battle of the number ones. <laughs> yeah, that too. It it was that too, but it had that undercurrent to it that I thought was really, really obvious. But I didn't even feel like he was going for revenge at any point. Like, did he say anything? Did I miss something there? That was one thing that was absent in that battle, uh, just as well that it was, was the action movie one-liner when he finally manages to knock the Viceroy into the bottomless pit that suddenly appeared on the Enterprise. Yeah, can we discuss why somehow, instead of Jeffrey's tubes, all of a sudden they have this giant cavernous space with a bottomless pit? I mean, people criticize the 2009 movie all the time for being too much like Star Wars and not enough like Star Trek. But Nemesis is the one where all of a sudden they have a bottomless pit to throw the enemy into. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of weird set things on this movie, I must say. Like, the one that really shocked me was the Romulan Senate. Like, what a pathetic Romulan Senate. Like, the Canadian uh, House of Commons is yeah. way nicer. The yeah. Scimitar Bridge is bigger than the Romulan Senate. Yeah, the Romulan Senate has, what, about 25 people in it? That's <laughs> yeah, pathetic. And they have a tile floor map of the Federation neutral zone on the floor of their Senate. <laughs> I mean, I get that they took the screenshot from way back in Balance of Terror and put it on the floor, and that's cool and all, but what the hell is that doing there? <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought it was just weird. Like, that whole scene. Has the people who made this movie never seen a government before? Like, that's that was lame. And the other sets, like, we were talking about the ships looking... Like, that, that one ship with just the giant, giant four steps uh, that they had giant floor that you had to walk up and down when Shinzon reveals himself and they put up the light that scene I don't know what room that was but that was insane yeah it was like, I, like a grand reception hall on the warship on a warship yeah. on, the, on the warship with the conveniently placed window to fly the fighter through yeah I mean I the one the one time there's a fighter in Star Trek <laughs> that too I think all the sets were kind of shitty Besides, you know, the Enterprise is the, the normal Enterprise night. But the other ones, they just... Like everything with this movie, they just... They missed. Also, in terms of the ships, they made a new CGI model of the Enterprise-E for this movie as distinct from the one they made for Insurrection. And is it just me, or does it look worse now? Maybe. I mean, I guess it's hard to tell, I guess. Why did they make a new CG model rather than just reuse the one from Insurrection? I remember reading at the time that the effects team felt the CG model from Insurrection wasn't as faithful a reproduction of the model they had built for First Contact. And so they wanted to, like, rescan it and, you know, remake the CG model. I don't know. I felt the CG in this movie, as opposed to Insurrection, which we were rather roundly praising in our last episode, the CG in this movie seemed a little dated. I don't know, the, the action, I don't know. It's really hard to judge these things for me. I will say I do think the ship, if you want to try to say which one looked better, I do think it looked better in Insurrection. Just the Enterprise itself. Steven, what do you think about any of this? 
I haven't watched Insurrection in so long. Um, I thought the ship looked okay, but it looked it, it wasn't spectacular. It wasn't like um, it wasn't like a Star Wars movie or anything. It it just was, <laughs> it, it it looked okay. It looked didn't look that much better than TV or anything to me, to be honest. Like it was probably below Babylon Five. <laughs> Ooh, that's oh. that's harsh. I wouldn't go that far. That's that's very that's very harsh. Well, it didn't impress me. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> like the ship in flybys, I would say that the insurrection ship looked better. But I think in the battles, the the CG looked fine. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm judging it differently because I know the battle is fake, and so I'm not gonna. Yeah, I suppose. I think it might get a, a better read of it from the battle scene because, you know, the space battle is pretty good as far as it goes. I mean, the big battle at the end. I mean, it, it's Aspects all right. Aspects of it are okay. You know, it's, it's pretty good for a space battle. I don't like the frequent pauses where for some reason the scimitar stops attacking so that we can have a dramatic scene on the Enterprise. I suppose. Oh, and there's also... I think my biggest criticism of the space battle would probably be the fact that Donatra comes in with her two warbirds and does absolutely nothing. Yeah, that part confused the hell out of me. I think I went to grab a drink and I came back and all of a sudden another ship was there and then it was destroyed. And I was just like, whoa, what the... What did I miss? Yeah, two warbirds show up to assist the Enterprise and it's a brand new design of warbird that we've never seen before. And almost as soon as they get there, they're both destroyed or disabled, and so they're again no help to the Enterprise. Yeah, I mean, Commander Dinatra, after exhibiting doubts about Shinzon earlier in the movie, kind of rides in to almost save the day or something, and she has this conversation with Captain Picard about how, you know, you've made such a great friend at Romulus today, and... You know, they're going to have such great cooperation in this battle. And then the two warbirds are, are dispatched with great ease. Yeah. And which I suppose is supposed to be a moment where you think, holy shit, this scimitar just dispatched these two warbirds. Now the Enterprise is up against even more staggering odds. But it again, that idea did not come to fruition. It was just like these two warbirds show up almost out of nowhere, because the scenes with Donatra earlier movie were very short and not that great, and are just completely dispatched within a couple of minutes, and ultimately meant nothing. Yeah. But also there are these scenes, like when Troy is playing Ouija board with the targeting computer, why isn't the scimitar attacking at that point? Why is there this pause in the battle where they have time to set up Troy with the targeting computer and have her play Ouija board? When the with the ramming sequence, why is the scimitar not attacking at that point? Why is it just sitting there waiting for Picard to decide to ram them? There are these moments where Shinzon just stops attacking for no particular reason other than we need the battle to pause so that we can have a scene on the Enterprise. Uh, yeah, it is a little broken up. That's fair. Also, the scimitar has a lot of moving parts for a giant warship. Like, the wings unfold, and, and then parts unfold out of them, and then these two, like, Thaoron launchers unfold out of the tips of them. It's like, ships that big that have that big moving parts, and they all still work after this big battle, after the ship was rammed, 
all of these moving parts still work perfectly? Nothing's a millimeter out of alignment? Yeah, and everything has to move into a particular position, and everything has to take a certain amount of time to move into its particular position. It feels like a couple of the action scenes in this movie feel like they're put in just to be a level in the eventual video game. Except they weren't making Star Trek video games like that at this point. No. Nobody was waiting for the Christmas release of Star Trek Nemesis for the PlayStation. You know, where there's the level where you're driving the Argo, and there's the level where you have to navigate the hallways in the Scorpion thing to fly out the window, and there's the level where you have to, like destroy the things that are glowing on the surface of the ship before everything unfolds into attack position or something. Yeah. You know, it, it feels so much like things are just pasted in for that reason. And may, maybe that's just something I'm assuming because of that sense that these things are pasted in. Because there's no particular story motivation for them, you're seeking some other motivation that would explain them. Yeah, maybe that's just an example of uh, the mind's ability for uh, confabulation. Uh, Steven, I think I interrupted you a second ago. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, I think this would probably work better as a video game, the way you were describing it. (laughs) Sounds like a pretty fun video game. (laughs) It could be, actually. You know, you get to ride a dune buggy, you get to ride a ship inside of another ship, you get to blow shit up. You get to crash the Enterprise. You get to crash the Enterprise. You get to do a Ouija board scene. Um, you know, yeah, make make the PC version, and you can text Counselor Troy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, do you want to talk about the texting? Well, there's not much to say about the texting. It's just I found it. I, the one thought I had at that point was: Does Commander Riker know that Captain Picard is texting his girl? His girl is definitely. <laughs> His girl is definitely how the movie thinks of her. (laughs) You know, he even used abbreviated speak. You know, what was it, like full impulse or whatever, on my CMD. Yes. (laughs) Because he has to abbreviate to shorten the message that he's sending to the console next to him. And this is 2002. I I mean, text messaging was a thing. And, you know, and, and pagers were a thing for a long time, but this is before, like, the huge explosion of SMS, right? And and so, you know, yeah, Picard is texting his officers suddenly. You know, where's that Tumblr? Texts <laughs> from Picard. <laughs> also, when, when the view screen blows up and the helmsman that Troy replaced gets sucked out into space, how long does it take for that force field to turn on to, like, Stop from I, venting the entire ship into va- into vacuum. Like thirty seconds. Like it takes a long time before that force field finally kicks in. If that thing had turned on faster, the helmsman wouldn't have been blown out into space. Poor, poor helmsman. It, it's a good thing that Data had to go take Riker's seat, and so he wasn't at right at the front of the bridge. <laughs> that was something else I thought of. Well. Like, in the middle of battle, is it really good to take Data off that op station and replace him with some random ensign? Like, don't you want Data at that station in the battle? Even well, if he is filling in for First Officer, he can give First Officer orders from that station. Well, they also took Worf off the tactical console to go fight the Remans, where he did nothing, by the way. Well, what about that awesome bit where he fell down onto the ground and fired his phaser behind no cover? He dove down behind... No cover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like everyone did in Insurrection when they were diving onto the rocks. <laughs> the rocks. 
That was right before the Viceroy and Riker jumped out of the hallway down into the chute to the trash compactor, right? Yeah, talking about the Star Wars parallels. Good gravy. Like, and that whole thing, they left uh, Deanna Troy, the friggin' counselor of the ship, in command. Yeah, like, when Picard left and then Data left, yeah. Why? <laughs> like, leave Worf in command. Leave, you know, Riker in command. Leave Data in command. Worf was, by, the, Worf was by that point completely forgotten. I mean, we saw him dive yeah. under no cover, and then Riker followed the Viceroy down the chute to the trash compactor slash bottomless pit, and we didn't pick back up on Worf until, like, the end of the movie. Yeah, the scene that's set, like, three months later. Well, he was also, uh, yeah, when they're all drinking their Chateau Picard to toast Data. Well, actually, I'm not sure when that scene is. Because Riker's not even a captain yet at that point, so that could be right after the battle. Maybe. I was I was thinking of when Worf is on the comm overhead saying that the warp engines are ready to come back online. That's like months later after repairing the ship. Yeah, exactly, when when the Enterprise is in the dry dock. Dry dock, though, that was nice enough to see, reminiscent enough of the motion picture. It was sort of reminiscent of the motion picture, although you could tell... The different shape of the dry dock reflects the different shape of the ship. Where the refit version of the original Enterprise was a much taller ship. Rather than the Enterprise E, which is sort of squat. Yeah, definitely. They had to make a dry dock the shape of a Sovereign class ship. Yeah. And that, I think, gets to the big mystery of just what the hell Worf was even doing there in the movie. Because... I don't think they ever said it in the movie. It might have been in the script. It might have been in some of the ancillary materials. But there was the implication there that since Riker was going off to Captain the Titan, that Worf was taking over as first officer of the Enterprise. Or, no, not until Data died, right? Yes. He took over as first officer at the end of the movie. We think. You can think. Nothing says that one way or the other. And there's actually a deleted scene that had some other guy, a brand new character, played by Stephen Culp, as the new first officer, Commander Madden. But that scene was deleted, and so you're left with this scene where Worf is the one that calls Picard to tell him, come to the bridge, the warp engine's ready to go back online. So you can interpret that, if you want to, as Worf being in the position of the new first officer. But it doesn't say definitively one way or the other. Yeah, there's at least an implication that he's filling a spot. But it says explicitly in the wedding ceremony that Data is going to be Picard's new first officer when Riker and Troy go off to the Titan. Yeah. Right, right, of course. But Data died, so I guess Worf is next in line? It's open to interpretation. There's nothing in the movie that says definitively one way or the other. Some fans want to say, yes, Worf is the new first officer. If I remember correctly, that's the direction that some of the post-Nemesis novels took, that they inserted Worf as Picard's new first officer. You could also go with the guy from the deleted scene, Commander Madden. There are people that go with that interpretation. It's completely wide open. The movie doesn't say anything one way or the other. The movie doesn't say anything about why Worf is there on the ship at all. They do in the other Star Trek movies, though. They explain it. No, they don't really. I mean, they explain it in First Contact a little bit. But not in Insurrection? Well, in Insurrection, the line Picard says, Mr. Worf, what the hell are you doing here? And then Worf says something about, well, I was on a mission to this planet and decided to stop by, or something like that. Well, that's at least something. But that's completely covered over by other dialogue. 
Yeah, so like you don't even really get Worf's explanation there. And if you didn't have that scene, then there would be absolutely zero explanation of why he's there in Insurrection. So the zero explanation of why he's there in Nemesis, while annoying and a deficiency, isn't that much different from Insurrection, where there isn't much of an explanation either. I like that at least they acknowledged that he isn't a part of the crew. Here, it just seems like he's back working on the crew. So it, to me, like watching this movie... It makes me feel that he's left Klingon and now he's working in the... Like, it makes me ask all these questions as if, if they just said, oh, thanks for coming all the way from Cronus for our wedding. Like, they could have done that, right? Yeah, they could have had one line. Like, they had one line in Insurrection about it. They could have had one line of, like, you know, thanks for joining us for the wedding cruise to Beta Z or whatever. Yeah. That was... If I recall correctly, in the script as well, there was one line that they snipped out of the scene at the wedding reception where Jordy or Guinan or someone said, you know, oh, so the diplomatic corps wasn't for you, huh? To just kind of say that, yes, we know he went somewhere at the end of DS9, but we don't care. <laughs> but, like, because of all the other issues with the movie, it makes me feel like they just didn't, like, know that he shouldn't be on the Enterprise. <laughs> Well, these are the sorts of things that I like to try to explain in-universe, and you, Glenn, generally explain outside of universe. So while Stephen and I can discuss why there's no explanation, and what happened to Worf, and what happened to his assignment as the Klingon ambassador, and what's going on here, you, you I would expect your explanation to be, well, it was in Michael Dorn's DS9 contract that he would continue to be in all the TNG movies. So here he is. I'm happy enough to explain it from either or both perspectives, and... You know, you're not going to have a next-gen movie without Worf, no matter what you need to do or not do to get him there. You know, you're going to have the core cast of next-gen. Especially for this, you know, it's been 15 years, we've got this family kind of ending lap for the next generation. Yeah, they even brought Wesley Crusher back. Yeah, they even brought back Wesley Crusher and Guinan. Yeah. You know, the only person they didn't bring back for this movie was Barkley. Oh, yeah. And O'Brien. Chief O'Brien. Yeah, although, of course, by this time, Barkley had been in a bunch of Voyager episodes, so I guess he was off doing other stuff, too. Yeah. But still. Yeah, and Wesley one's weird, because isn't he, like, some super special, like, flying alien thing who can, like, turn into special powers? Like, isn't that how he left the show? Well, he went off with the Traveler to explore other planes of existence. And so he's been having metaphysical experiences since the end of Next Gen, basically. And that's something that's open to interpretation, too. I know there are some explanations, I don't remember if they're fan theories or if they're in a novel or something, that Wesley kind of showed up from other planes of existence and he was naked when he showed up. And so they, like, gave him a Starfleet uniform, because why not? Yeah, and so so they, you know, got in touch with the ship and said, you know, beam down in uniform or something. Uh, and you could also say that he came back and he's in Starfleet now, like that time Q wanted to join the crew. Or he came back like Q and just gave himself a uniform because he felt like it and no one wanted to have an argument just then at the wedding. You know, depending on how much of a douche you want to think Wesley is. All of this to explain like a half a second of him showing up at the edge of the screen. Yeah, there was a little bit of dialogue that he had that was cut out of the movie, too. It's in the deleted scenes, but I haven't seen it in a very long time, and I don't remember what it was. 
That's the kind of analysis you get here on the podcast, folks. <laughs> Am I the only one that noticed at the end of the movie that like the view screen is completely open to space and the bridge is a disaster area, but when Picard goes off to deal with his own emotional turmoil, the ready room is fine. <laughs> Even the door still works. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, there's... I don't know. There's consistency issues. This is why I was confused. Because you'll see, you'll see stuff like that. Or One of the big ones for me was this whole Riemann thing. Because like, we've seen Romulans for years. And all of a sudden, there's another race inside the Romulan Empire who somehow gains control and had been used by the Romulans for slaves and all this stuff. It was just very weird to, like, introduce these Remans in here to here. You know, I think that makes enough sense to go along with it, though, that the Romulans would have this slave class, or slave race, as the case may be, and they just kind of keep them out of the view of everyone in the episodes we see them in. I mean, the episodes we encounter Romulans in, for the vast majority of them... It's a warbird or two or an ambassador sometimes in DS9. And they're not going to have the Remans out there with them in those situations because, you know, that would be a little unseemly when you're doing, you know, war posturing at the edge of the neutral zone with, you know, Tomalock and all them. Or when you're having your ambassadors go to DS9 to figure out what your role is going to be in the war or any of the other things that we see the Romulans doing. You can make a case for Inter Arma Enem Silent Ledges when Dr. Bashir actually goes to Romulus, that maybe there would be a little more there. Or in Unification, I think would be the strongest case that if there was a Romulan underclass, that maybe Spock would be interested in how they're doing. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I think it's fair enough that you can go along with the idea that the Romulans were kind of keeping up appearances otherwise. And the Romulans would be the sort to have, you know, slave races in their empire anyway, wouldn't they? Another episode you could talk about it with is Face of the Enemy. Yes. Because I think if you have a slave class, what self-respecting Romulan Imperial officer would man waste extraction on a warbird when you have a slave class available? Yeah. Yeah, maybe there are, you know, weird things they do with who can, you know, staff their military ships, but that's just kind of... That's that's me trying to explain it in-universe rather than resorting to the production explanation. It's very hard to get your Ubermension to do the scut work when you have Untermension. Yeah, that's very true. Well, so, I did research here. Oh. Okay, so, uh, Remus is a sister planet or nearby solar system labeled Ramai appeared on a star map in the original series Balance of Terror episode. Yeah. The first episode to feature the Ramans. The name Remus is mentioned by Kirk in this episode as a planet when he says patrolling outposts guarded the neutral zone between planets Romulus and Remus and the rest of the galaxy received an emergency call. So this is a throwback to the original series, I guess. Well, they always had the sister planets. Yeah, Romulus and Remus. Well, just because you have a planet Remus doesn't mean you have a race of Remans. Yeah. Because you don't actually have a race of Romulans. The Romulans are just Vulcan exiles. So the Remans, I guess, are the natives that the Vulcan exiles conquered. 
which I guess well, makes a certain amount of sense. That makes the Remans the Native Americans. <laughs> oh, well, now we're back in imperialism territory. We were in an insurrection as well. Or if you want to do a better analogy, the Remans are the Australian Aborigines. Yeah. Because the, the Romulans weren't Vulcan colonists. The Romulans weren't Vulcan colonists, they were Vulcan exiles. And so Australia might be the better analogy than North America. Yeah, and that just goes back to this anxiety that an oppressor class has about the class that it's oppressing. You know, and it goes to a lot of the mistreatment of Aborigines in Australia, and the mistreatment of slaves in the U.S. and in the Caribbean, where they actually did revolt. And this, like, crushing anxiety that oppressor classes have that their Untermenschen are going to revolt. And then it actually happens, and the military tries to stage a coup, but they're helping our heroes, the Enterprise crew, so that's okay. <laughs> I really... I, can you sense how much I want the Remans to be the Bolsheviks? <laughs> Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna draw the parallel, it's like it's like if the Australian Aborigines revolted and took over England, and then decided to wipe out all life in France. The analogy does get a little tortured. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, who would respond to that threat but a Frenchman like Jean Luc Picard? There we go. <laughs> We've come full circle. Oh, bring it home. <laughs> Bring me home, quantum foam. <laughs> Can I ask a question that bugged me? And again, this is one you'll probably answer from a production perspective, and I like asking these questions in-universe. When Shinzon orders attack pattern Shinzon Theta, <laughs> why does a person raised by Remans who's taken over the Romulans name his attack patterns after Greek letters? We're watching <laughs> the movie through the filter of the Universal Translator. There you go. <laughs> but he speaks English because he's talking to Picard and they don't have... I guess they have the Universal Translators. I think they don't in, have... In theory, you could say all those scenes are operating through the Universal Translator. They could be speaking whatever language. Yeah, Picard may be speaking French in his subjective reality and Shinzon might be speaking Romulan. He might be speaking Riemann. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they have their own dialect or full language or something. Well, Data says that they have their own language. Right. It's a very interesting language with pictograms representing certain verb roots. Why would... Like, I understand the Enterprise would have a universal translator, right? But why would the Riemann ship have a universal translator? So they could talk to people other than other Riemanns. Yeah, it's a warship. They're, they're, they... they're Riemanns. They're, they were pissed off at everyone else i don't why would they wouldn't have other races on there i guess they installed it for when uh they invited picard in well it's a warship you want to be able to demand the surrender of whoever you're firing at okay i don't know the universal translator is a, a weird concept in star trek like in farscape i don't know if you guys watched farscape they put like a little small alien thing in you and then it translates all the, the babble fish <laughs> yeah, it basically sounds like a battlefish from yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide. Something like that. Yeah, I think it's a play on that. But in Star Trek, it's all computer-based, right? So whenever their hull is destroyed from, like, ramming into another ship, why the hell is the Universal Translator still running? Because I guess the computer core wasn't in the front edge of the saucer? I guess. 
It ought to be a simple enough algorithm that it would be in any, you know, piece of machinery. It wouldn't necessarily need to be a large, spanning, inherent feature of the ship. But... Not like the auto-destruct sequence that goes offline. Yeah, how often does the auto-destruct sequence go offline? Well, and also, uh, not to harp on this, but they didn't know anything about the Remans, right? Going into this? Very little, yeah. Very little. Then how do they know their language? I guess just from interaction with the Romulans, you'd think that'd be something they learn. Yeah, they're assisted by the Universal Translator, and there's some, you know, extent to which Data just kind of has to pick it up. Okay. Find us all very fishy. Not to be nitpicky. Oh, uh, uh, we, we would never. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, what else do you want to hit before we do the score and get out of here? Do you want to, me- do you want to mention Admiral Janeway? Do you want to mention Admiral Janeway? Uh, hey, Admiral Janeway's in this movie. What you think of that? Yeah, Picard was very nice to her. So that's good. My primary thought... My secondary thought is that's another scene where the characters don't seem to be taking anything seriously. Because Janeway rather jokingly says, Oh, you, you have to deal with the Sona and the Borg, and now you got to go deal with the Romulans. Ha ha ha. And Picard's like, Oh yeah, ha ha ha. No one seems to be taking anything seriously. As in, like, you know, oh, the Sona almost blew up your ship and committed a human rights disaster, and the Borg assimilated half your ship and killed, like, dozens of crew members. Ha ha ha. That's another instance where the characters even don't seem to be taking anything seriously in this movie. I do have sort of a visceral reaction of someone who didn't really like Voyager and didn't like the character of Janeway, and how the hell is she giving Jean-Luc Picard orders, but... That's more of a personal visceral reaction that I'm not sure I can defend logically. Yeah, that's kind of the reaction I had in 2002 when the movie came out, and I don't feel good about having been that person anymore. I feel like to completely justify that opinion, I'd have to watch a lot more Voyager, a lot more critically, and I don't really have a great desire to do that, and so I'm not going to try to defend that opinion. Yeah, I probably should watch Voyager at some point because it definitely has its fans... It had some fun stuff throughout. There was some good, they had like good story, like season long arcs. So like they had this one season where they're facing the, uh, the aliens that live in the liquid space. And that was kind of cool. I don't know how episode to episode it would go, but there's some good like ideas that are neatly done. It's been longer since I saw Voyager than it had been since I'd seen Nemesis. And Nemesis turned out to be not as abysmally bad as I remembered. So it's possible Voyager may not be as abysmally bad as I remember. Also, I possibly had very much higher standards at that point, because that was right after Next Generation's run. Generations had just come out. First Contact came out early in Voyager's run. DS9 was still on every week. I possibly had much higher standards at that point than I do after watching Voyager, watching Nemesis, watching Enterprise, watching absolutely nothing exist. For at least five years between the end of Enterprise and the 2009 movie. So I possibly am much more forgiving of Star Trek product now than I was in the late 90s watching Voyager for the first time. But I still don't have any great desire to revisit it. I may at some point, but I am not looking forward to it. Yeah, that's definitely something I probably should revisit. I don't know if I will. I might. Uh, Just a couple other character notes in this movie. 
The fact that Troy and Riker getting married is sort of the first act introduction to the crew that we get in this movie is done, I suppose, for a couple reasons. One, the production reason, of course, is that they want to do something big in the movie. We've talked about that a couple of times, that now that we're in the movies, we can do things that change the relationships between characters. And if we're going to be ending the series, then let's do something you know, relatively big with some of the characters. To an extent, I'm not sure how many other ideas they had for Riker, and especially Troy. Uh, to an extent, I also get a sense that I don't particularly appreciate that, you know, they made out in Insurrection, now they have to get married. <laughs> like, they resumed their romantic relationship in Insurrection, and we talked on that show, I mentioned on that show, how unimpressed I was with that particular choice, but now they have to get married. There is a certain feeling that, you know, they had this past relationship as a backstory in the first season, and since then they've mostly just been friends, and it didn't really come up again. It only really came up, like, once or twice later in the series, when Riker seemed to be, like, jealous of Troy's later relationships... Like when she would get together with the guest star of the week and Riker would be sort of sad about that, even though the two of them weren't actually in a relationship anymore. And then there was some manufactured friction in All Good Things about Riker's feelings about Worf and Troy sort of being in a relationship. And it just sort of has the feeling that, okay, well, we're coming near the end of stuff now and so let's throw them back together. You know, as if that had been the plan all along, when really that was sort of an idea they had in 1987 and quickly left behind. But now that they're coming to the end, they're just sort of going back to it, like, this is something we can do. Yeah, uh, Stephen, do you have the same impression that that's a little shoehorned in, too? I mean, just oh. is everything in this movie shoehorned in? I think you're using shoehorned in not to actually mean shoehorned in, but just to mean it's stupid. Arbitrary, maybe? Yeah. Yes. It, it was just there. Like, it was just... Like, sometimes with stories, it's like, oh, this is a natural progression to here, and this leads to this, and that all it works out well. Here was just a thing they did to kill time so that they could introduce a bunch of people at once, um, and that was about it. It had no relevance throughout the rest of the movie. It didn't lead to anything else. It wasn't a natural point from the all the things that led up to it. So it was just a thing that happened just to introduce characters and move on to the next. And of course, the only crew member not in a dress uniform at the wedding is Counselor Troy. Yeah, because she gets to wear a dress because... Uh, That's our wedding. Yeah. <laughs> what ha Like, Star Trek was always good at, like, breaking grounds and being open and being ahead of its times and stuff. Like, this movie feels like it took ten steps backwards. I think they wanted to throw two of the characters together just because things are ending and so let's marry off somebody. And this was the one where they could just randomly throw people together and yet still try to claim, well, we didn't just randomly throw people together with no build-up. This has been building for 15 years. Yeah, it's, it's not like... Whereas if they had done, like, Troy and Data or Crusher and LaForge or something like that, that would just come completely out of the blue, but... Riker and Troy, well, they've had their story going back to the pilot. I thought Crusher and Picard was the most obvious. Well, I got the sense that they were kind of revisiting the Crusher-Picard shipping a little bit in the scene where 
they're kind of reminiscing about young Picard. It's not that explicit, though. There's nothing, like, romantic about that. It's just these people have known each other for a long, long, long time, and they're reminiscing about the old days. Yeah, it, it is in the subtext. It might be particularly deep in the subtext, depending on your perspective. I, I might be a little sensitive to that stuff. I, I didn't really get anything shippy out of that scene. That's just two um, people that have known each other forever. Yeah. There was no romantic... They've always teased it. They teased it a lot throughout the series, I They thought. did, yeah. Actually, to an extent, more than they did Riker Troy. Yeah. Because yeah. Riker Troy, after like the first half of the first season, wasn't really romantic anymore after that. They were just really good friends who had this history. Picard and Crusher was sort of intermittent. There was a lot of it in the early series, but as late as season 7 in the episode Attached, there was a lot of romantic subtext there. So... In its way, that actually has more behind it than a Riker-Troy romance. Yeah, they revisited the Riker-Troy stuff a little bit, you know, with Thomas Riker especially, which kind of added another layer to it. But even there, it was Thomas that had the romantic interest. There was no romantic interest shown there between Will, Riker, and Troy. Yeah. Um, and of course, the writing leads to Picard's gag about Mr. Troy, which is just... Yeah, just that one was... Ugh. Just absolutely groan-inducing. But, like, even if he did take her name, who cares? Why is that a joke? What year is it? Like, that wouldn't be... It might be a joke now, but in 30 years, that's not going to be a joke, let alone, like, 200 years when this movie takes place. See, I didn't think that was as bad. Because I didn't see that... That was just sort of like a ha-ha joke. It wasn't like you're totally emasculated and your domineering wife is dominating you, you spineless wussy man. That was just like a, you know, ha-ha, one moment funny. It wasn't even an insult, really. I think in the context of Star Trek as it existed in the 90s and early 2000s, and especially in the context of having just been making fun of Worf for not wanting to go to the nude wedding, uh, it's uncomfortable yeah i didn't see it as that bad because i didn't think there was any bad feeling behind it i didn't think there was any insult behind it he was poking fun he was clearly poking fun at him i mean if the idea behind it was like oh ho ho you're whipped you spineless wussy man being dominated by your wife <laughs> that would have been extremely fucking regressive and stupid but i didn't see any of that in that moment Maybe that's just me being charitable, but I didn't see that. I I am not inclined to be so charitable. <laughs> Alright, let's talk about the score for this movie as one of our final topics here. And this is kind of a more important entry, not just because it's another Jerry Goldsmith score, not just because it's his fifth Star Trek score and his final Star Trek score, but indeed one of the last scores of his career. And his life. This is one of the last three scores that he did. It might have been the penultimate score that he did. I don't remember the exact order. But there was Nemesis. There was Looney Tunes Back in Action. His last movie with Joe Dante. With whom he'd done several films. And the rejected score for Timeline. I, you're just introducing all this trying to make me feel bad for shitting on it in a couple minutes. But considering his last score was rejected, maybe I shouldn't feel that bad. Oh, and that one had synths, too. No way, really? So we are back with Jerry Goldsmith. We are back with a lot of his trademark elements 
that he had in a lot of these scores. The motion picture title march is back to an extent. Uh, more than it was in Insurrection, at least. Yeah. Still almost nothing, but more than it was in the last two movies. The quest motif from Star Trek V and First Contact and sort of from Insurrection is back. That's and used a lot. It's used a lot because there isn't a love interest to have a love theme. There isn't... We just got done talking about all the shipping. The two people get married! Yeah, but they're not... Please, there isn't a love interest for Picard to get a love theme. No one else is getting a love theme. Are you kidding me? I mean, what? The Riker-Troy love theme is going to be used at the wedding and then when Troy gets raped? I don't think so. So, the quest motif from Star Trek V is used in a lot of the gentler scenes. And at the wedding reception, it is literally a busy man from Star Trek V that sort of extended version of that melody that was used in that movie. Which is kind of an interesting thing to do with it, it's kind of taking this theme for the quest for God from Star Trek V and using it as, like, a general theme for humanism. And it's also used in a couple of the scenes with Data and B4, just anything that needed a sort of gentler touch. While the centerpiece of this score, the thread that's running all through it in all sorts of variations, is Shinzon's theme. to say that the reason they use that motif so much is because there's really only one theme that he writes for this movie. Right, the new theme for this movie is for the villain, and so it's woven in in kind of mysterious scheming variations. It's got a lot of action variations. It is... a great theme for the action music because it can kind of blare out on the horns while there are all sorts of ostinati and other things going on that have a quicker pace. While Shinzon's theme that's somewhat of a longer melody when Goldsmith wants it to be, it also can be used as like a snarl. you know, that sort of descends the scale very quickly to kind of blast out in shorter forms, but it's varied a lot, and it's used a lot, and it, it really holds the score together. Shinzon's theme, in a lot of its variation, sounds a lot like the Terminator theme to me. See, I didn't get that impression from it. 
the beginning of Shinzon's theme, it's not exactly the same. There's a couple of notes off. I think there's an extra note in Shinzon's theme that isn't in the traditional Terminator theme. But it sounds really similar to me to, like, the first three-fourths of that first stanza of the Terminator theme. I know both of those themes pretty well, and I am just not imagining it. Okay, I I can see a transition point between the two. Like I said, it's not... And that's not even the best version to hear it in, but... Because they never really play the Terminator theme on a really slow clarinet, but... Like I said, there's an extra note in there, and it's not quite exactly the right, but it sounds like it's leading up to that. It sounds like... I can see how the melody would go in that direction, now that you explain it like that. I suppose. Every time I hear Shinzon's theme, that part of Shinzon's theme, I expect it to finish with the Terminator theme. And it never does. See, when you think of things that sound like the Terminator theme, I always think of the music they use for Jimmy Snuka. (laughs) It's like a fast-paced version of the Terminator theme with a drum machine. The Terminator theme has a drum machine sometimes, so... Yeah, it does. But, anywho. There's a lot of music in this movie that reminds me of other music. And I don't know if it's just because it's that similar to other music, or if that's just because my wishful thinking of I wish this was other music. Oh, God. But, I mean, there's also a theme that reminds me of the Amok Time fight music. There's also one part that reminded me of the Orokai theme from Fellowship of the Ring. There's a lot of music in this score that reminds me of other better music. Now, I remember when this score came out, it got a lot of pre-release hype. It got way too much pre-release hype, actually, but that's something that, you know, a music label is just going to do. You know, it was being hyped as another Goldsmith classic. You know, he's returning to form so much. When it really, really is a late-era Goldsmith score, it has a lot of those identifiers. But because of the tone of the movie, the score is a lot darker, the score is a lot more action-oriented, and where some of the action music in Insurrection, I think, was better than other examples from Insurrection, I think Nemesis really, really shines because of the strength of Shinzon's theme and the variability of it. I wouldn't say that because I wasn't that crazy about Shinzon's theme, and in general, I wasn't crazy about the music in this movie. There is so much schlocky synth in this movie schlocky synths in lieu of tunes, in lieu of melodies, in a lot of parts of this movie. Sometimes, Goldsmith liked to use synths like any other instrument. Where sometimes they're carrying a melody, and sometimes they're counterpoint, and sometimes they're almost like percussion. Yeah. You know, he liked to integrate it a lot with the orchestra. I think he liked to have it played live with the orchestra as they were recording as well. I mean, if the synth is playing the melody of the main theme, I mean, that's one thing. But in a lot of places in this movie, the synth it's just synth banging. Yeah, a lot of it is... Not even like synth drums, but just like synth chords hitting as a bang 
and then repeating itself. Oh, but there is in a... lieu of melody. Oh, but there is the drum machine as well. <laughs> um, especially in the opening cue, as you know, the Nemesis logo goes by, and we have our little taste of the Alexander Courage fanfare, and then instead of the what had become traditional opening theme presentation of one of the gentler themes, you know, the First Contact theme or the Baku theme in Insurrection, we go right into an angry version of Shinzon's theme with this aggressive drum machine. Which, I can see the case for it, I can see the case against it, I can definitely see how it comes off as schlocky. And I agree to an extent. I've said in a lot of these Goldsmith scores that I am not the biggest fan of his synthesizers, like, from the 80s onward. And so, obviously that's going to be a factor. And I think it would be fair to say that it's a little dated. I think that's basically what you're getting at when you say schlocky, right? Not really. I mean, I don't mind dated. And I don't even mind the synths in Star Trek V. I just mind how they're used. They're used in a schlocky manner. Well, in Star Trek V, they carry the melody more often. Cybox theme is often on the synthesizers. Yeah, I like melody. Yes. I, I like there to be a tune in my music. The only ones where his synths really get egregious, I suppose, are Insurrection and Nemesis. Even in First Contact, they're, they're pretty well integrated. It seems like as time goes on, the synths become more and more prominent. The synths become less and less involved with playing anything resembling a melody. And really, the score itself becomes less involved in playing anything resembling a melody. And more and more toward just, like, short bursts. Well... Like, I've said that in complaining about Insurrection, and even in my criticism of First Contact, that... There's like 10 seconds of good music, but there's never two minutes of good music. I suppose. I mean, my favorite piece from this score is the version of Shinzon's theme in the end credits. And that's, what, two and a half, three minutes, maybe? Where is it three minutes? It's not like 20 seconds, and then something else happens for 30 seconds, and then another 20 seconds? No, by the time the credits come around, Goldsmith can actually explore Shinzon's theme in a way that he couldn't in any other part of the movie. Um, he could have. Well, no, it kind of blossoms into an elegy for the person Shinzon could have been. You know, if he'd had some sort of big redemption or something, if the movie had gone in that direction, or been set in that direction in the first place, if he was going to be redeemed, he would have had to not rape Counselor Troy. But we've been over that part. <laughs> so, 
th- there's this exploration of it in a gentler context, in a more dramatic context, rather than as an aggressive snarl or something that rings out over an action scene, as it does in pretty much all of the action scenes. And so it kind of blossoms into this exploration that I think is just beautiful. And this isn't a score I listened to very much when the movie came out because it was too associated with the movie for me, but that one piece in the middle of the end credits, at least on the original album, in the movie the end credits are chopped and screwed and edited egregiously, and on the expanded album that came out at the end of 2013, there is an edited version of the end credits, but it's not the movie version of the end credits, because the movie version of the end credits really is terrible. But there are a couple of different versions there. The, the original album version is structured like a standard Goldsmith Star Trek end credits piece, where it has the motion picture theme, and then this this gorgeous exploration of Shinzon's theme, which is really my point of entry to perceiving it in other areas of the score and the way that it was used in so many different ways in other parts of the score, and then closes with the motion picture theme. I think one of your notes actually was that the motion picture theme as it appears in the end credits in this movie, like other parts of the movie, are kind of weak and tired. Well, the performances of the motion picture theme, the next generation theme, are relatively similar from one movie to the next, from the motion picture to Star Trek V to First Contact to Insurrection. The performance they do for Nemesis, like so much of the rest of the movie, just sounds old and tired. It's noticeably slower than the performances on the other scores. It's definitely got a slower tempo, um, which does make it sound a little more rote. Like, the one thing that was consistent, like, whatever else Goldsmith was dicking around with during the main body of Insurrection, you could at least count on the motion picture theme over the end credits. And even that in this movie isn't as good. Star Trek is old and tired, The Next Generation is old and tired, Jerry Goldsmith is old and tired, and the performance of this theme on this movie is old and tired. I definitely agree that the slower tempo doesn't do the theme any favors. Um, Thankfully, it is in the body of the score a couple more times than it was in Insurrection, and Goldsmith is actually trying to recall some of the feel of the motion picture when the Enterprise is in dry dock. There's a quote of the Enterprise from the motion picture. Yeah. Um, But because of the comparative length of scenes in a 1979 contemplative science fiction movie and a 2002 sci-fi action thriller, you know, 
the Enterprise was a five-minute tour de force in the motion picture, and the quotation of it at the end of Nemesis is about 30 seconds long. If that. Going, again, to your point, to the amount of time that he has due to the structure of, of a given film to kind of broaden themes like that. I don't buy that excuse. I don't buy the excuse as well. That's the way they cut up a movie in 02 that they didn't do in 1979, and that's why the music is so chopped up. I don't buy that excuse, because in 2009, Michael Giacchino's score doesn't suffer like that. Michael Giacchino, in 2009 and again in 2013, has long, multi-minute explorations of tunes as part of that score, as if achieving multi-minute explorations of themes is a big achievement. So I don't buy that excuse of, oh, well, the more frenetic direction style of 2002 doesn't allow Goldsmith to explore the theme anymore. G. Kino managed to do it in 2009 and 2013, so I don't buy that excuse. Nothing is more frenetically directed than the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot movies. I don't buy that excuse. If Goldsmith failed to put together a decent track that explored a theme for two and a half minutes, that's on Goldsmith. It's not on Stuart Baird. Gee, you have no counter-argument. Uh, you stumped me. Aha! Uh, well, we're going to be discussing the use of music in the J.J. Abrams movies when we get to those soon. Very soon now. <laughs> um, but to pivot back to Goldsmith a little bit, I think since this is his last Star Trek score, we can kind of consider his career overall in the context of Star Trek, because I feel that his Star Trek scores kind of checked in on a few discrete phases in his career. In 1979, when he did the motion picture, he was kind of coming out of a period that was very experimental, that was working with a lot of synthesizers, really, in the 1970s, and coming into a little more of a romantic period. And in the wake of so many high-profile scores for so many movies, kind of really taking advantage of that. Uh, the use of the full orchestra, which had not been in vogue to an extent. And so he was really coming into a period of kind of flexing his muscle in that way a little more. And then by the time you get to 1989, he's gone through a shift again when he's experimental again and using the synthesizers a great deal, but as we mentioned in the Star Trek V show, it doesn't feel as experimental as the blaster beam elements, for example, in Star Trek I did, when he's using more standard synth equipment and using it in ways that might feel a little more dated. Some of the longer synth tones at the beginning of the main titles and end credits, for example. But there's definitely a stylistic shift that happens in the 10 years between his scores for 1 and 5 that kind of shows where he's gone as a composer in the intervening time. And then again, we come back to him in the mid and late 90s and finally at the end of his career in 2002, where he's doing a lot more action thrillers. He's integrating synthesizers in a way that is very upfront, which we've talked about a great deal. But what do you think about what his Star Trek scores kind of say about the different phases of his career? Well, I'm not as familiar with his career as you are. You've listened to a lot more 
scores than I have. You've listened to a lot more Jerry Goldsmith scores than I have. So you're going to be able to answer that question a lot better than I can. I'm really just judging these Star Trek scores. And I would say that you can see a progression from the longer, more melodically driven tracks of the motion picture to the short bursts of tune relatively isolated from each other that he's doing by the time of Nemesis. Where a track like the Overture, Ilea's theme from the motion picture is like a relatively short track for that score. And that's a few minutes of Ilea's theme. Compare that to the just these short bursts of music that he's doing by Insurrection and Nemesis. It, it's just such a marked transition, and I don't know exactly why he made that transition. Is there some outside influence of his career that led him in that direction, or is that just sort of the way he evolved as an artist for whatever unknowable reason? Do his other scores follow the same pattern? Like other other films he did in 78, 79, 80, compared to other films he did in 98, 99, in the 2000s? I can't answer those questions because I'm not as familiar with his career. Well, there are some other famous scores from these periods that show him doing things in much different styles sometimes, and sometimes in more similar styles. You know, just thinking of 1979, there's also Alien, which is very, very far from the motion picture. Thinking about Ilea's theme, as, as you like to bring up fairly often, that's also such an unabashedly romantic love theme. So much more than anything else he ever writes for Star Trek again. You know, even when he gets to write a love theme in Insurrection, it's, you know, a little removed. I don't want to say impersonal, but I think removed. Um, a little more tentative, I think. Well, it's relatively short and not explored very much compared to the themes he writes for motion picture. I suppose. He also wrote a lot more music for the motion picture. Uh, and somewhat more music for Star Trek V, even. Although he did write a lot of music for Nemesis as well. Uh, maybe because they felt they needed him to kind of help prop the movie up a little bit, but <laughs> that was a longer score than First Contact or Insurrection. Why do you think he leans so heavily on the Shinzon theme in that movie? Because it's the only theme he writes for that movie. And even if you want to say, well, he doesn't have any other things he can write themes around, which I don't necessarily buy that excuse, but even if you buy that excuse, he could have used the motion picture theme more than just one phrase of it three or four times throughout the film. He could have used some of his other themes that he wrote throughout the series. He does lean on that questing motif you talk about. He leans on that a bit, but but again, he doesn't explore it very deeply. He just leans so heavily on that one theme, the Shinzon theme, rather than write a second theme or even explore a previously written theme. I don't know what the decision-making was exactly around not using the title march more. I assume that must have been a conscious decision by someone at some point. You would think, especially since it was so identified with the TV show, that it would be obvious to use it more. Once you, know, you got Jerry Goldsmith doing the Next Generation movies, you'd think it'd be all over the place. Even in Generations, they could have used it. I yeah. suppose. You know, it was next gen on, on, on the big screen. I love the generation score. It's just as well they didn't, but 
you know, you'd think that must have been under consideration at some point. I can't really answer that satisfactorily because I agree that he could have, you know, used a little more. Maybe it was because after so much time, you know, there might have been an impression that there weren't that many more variations on it to do. Maybe it was thought to be cliche to an extent. I really don't know. But at any rate, we are saying goodbye to the next generation. We are saying goodbye to Jerry Goldsmith, and we are going to get very, very different substitutions for each in our next Star Trek movie and our next Star Trek score. Let's have a little bit of a summation of the movie overall as we get out of here. Do you think, Stephen, are there any lessons that come out of the trend line and the failure of the next-gen movies in a popular context and in an aesthetic context, are there any lessons for future Star Trek in movies and on television? Well, if something's doing okay, like, the, the, movies, were, the movies were successful, right? Like, all the ones leading up to this? I'm not sure how well Insurrection did. I mean, there was a reason they waited four years before they made another one. Yeah, Insurrection, I think, had a pretty big drop. I think it opened pretty well and then had a drop. Well, I think the big... If you're going to get someone who's going to take over something that's been going on for 15 years, make sure they, they understand what the hell they're taking over. Because this... Like, the problem with this movie is it feels like the people in charge didn't understand the characters or understand what this was about. And they just wanted to make an action movie. And they had, like, they watched the pilot, so they knew the baseline, what the people were, and they just went from there. It feels completely like they made a movie with, it was like a reboot type of thing, where, or, like, they didn't understand. It was just weird the way they did it. So I think the big problem, like, if you're having J.J. Abrams do these movies for three of them or two of them, whatever, and then you go to make a new one, don't have someone who's never seen Star Trek before take over Chris Pine as Kirk, right? Like, it just, it, it wouldn't work. You can't build stuff up and then completely ignore it and do a new movie with the same characters. It's just wrong. Uh, Scott, what do you think that the lessons are in the way the next-gen movies kind of ground to a halt here, and the way the Star Trek franchise was grinding to a halt during this era for what the franchise needed to do going forward? I think it's very hard for me to judge because a lot of the criticisms I want to lay at the feet of these next-gen movies are the same criticisms other people lay at the feet of the J.J. Abrams reboot and I look down my nose at those criticisms and wholly reject them as they relate to the J.J. Abrams reboot and yet I want to say the exact same thing about the Next Generation movies that they're too obsessed with action bits and they don't spend enough time on plot and characters. And you can argue whether or not the reboot movies do that, and I assume we will in our upcoming episodes, but for the Next Generation movies, it just felt like too much of a departure from the series. That as Patrick Stewart got more influence over production, as Brent Spiner got more influence over production, these people knew their characters in a way, but didn't necessarily know what should be done with their characters in a movie. It's, it's almost like when a wrestler gets creative control, 
you'd think they'd know their own character the best, but it turns out they don't necessarily know best what to do with their character. And it sort of went downhill in that respect. The increasing focus on action scenes. You can say that they had a problem with focusing on the action scenes too much, but the real problem is the action scenes sucked. The action scenes weren't any good, and the story building up into those action scenes weren't any good, and the plot that le led you into those action scenes weren't any good. That was the real problem. Because if you look at First Contact, First Contact was heavily focused on action scenes. First Contact didn't really dwell on a lot of plot and character points, but it worked in First Contact. It just didn't work in Insurrection, and it really, really didn't work in Nemesis. And, and so the main criticism is just that it wasn't good. If it was focused on action, but it worked and it was entertaining and it was exciting, we wouldn't be complaining about it. So that's the main lesson, and it's an incredibly banal lesson, but that's the lesson. Whatever you're going to do, if you're going to do character work, if you're going to do intricate story, if you're going to do action scenes, whatever you're going to do, make it good. Because if it's not good, people are going to shit on it and complain about it. If you do good, no matter what you do, that's good. As long as it is good, people aren't going to complain. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lesson there to integrate everything more. And, like you say, to have just a general standard of quality <laughs> would definitely help. Um, I mean, people even knew going in that this one was going to be a turkey. I think it was the first Star Trek movie, and the only Star Trek movie so far, I believe, that was not number one at the box office its opening weekend. It lost out to Made in Manhattan. a The Jennifer Lopez vehicle. A light comedy starring Jennifer Lopez. And then the next week, The Two Towers came out. Well. <laughs> uh, and this was also around the time the latest James Bond movie was coming out. I, I don't remember exactly when that was in the schedule, but... Wasn't there also a Harry Potter movie that opened like, within was. a month? There, there was Chamber of Secrets. Was that like around Thanksgiving or something, maybe? Uh, give me two seconds, because I had that information up earlier. Um, so I'll be able to grab it. Uh, yeah, so it was released on December 13th in the theater at the time. Harry Potter, Chamber of Secrets was out November 15th, was still in theater. Uh, James Bond, Die Another Day was out November 22nd. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers was released uh, the 18th, which was a week after. So that's the movies it was. Yeah, uh, and, the, and these are the, the field in which they're kind of dropping Nemesis when... Already, people were getting a little tired of these movies. I don't think the trailers did a whole lot for it. And so, it just sank. Just completely, completely sank. It opened number two, behind Made in Manhattan, though. Behind Made in Manhattan! <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to impugn the legacy of Jennifer Lopez, but still. It was the first uh, Star Trek movie not to debut as the highest grossing film of the week. Exactly. And, you know, whatever lessons you have based on who's making the movie and how they're making the movie and the general quality, there are also lessons for keeping up with the times a little bit. It's, it's a little strange to think that this next-gen film series was still going on in the era of the big-budget CGI, you know, fantasy adventure movies that were kind of de rigueur for a long time. You know, during the Harry Potter series, in the middle of the Lord of the Rings. You know, this is the only Star Trek movie that came out the same year as a Star Wars movie. 
And having reappraised Nemesis a little bit, I think I would say it's better than Attack of the Frickin' Clones. But <laughs> not by a whole lot. I don't know. I think that's arguable. Maybe, but I don't want to revisit Attack of the Frickin' Clones. That was the best of those prequels. I kind of disagree there, but they're all so bad that I don't want to argue about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get involved there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, let us do our closing plugs at this point as we wrap up the show. Um, Steven, what is there that you've been working on lately or you have coming up, and where do you want people to contact you on social media? I don't really got much going on. I'm so, um, after the Greatest Wrestler Ever thing ended at, at the end of April and, uh, on Pro Wrestling Only, I've been so burnt out on podcasts and wrestling and everything. You know, we did, me and uh, Tim Livingston on the Pro Wrestling Super Show, we did 10 hours running down our, our top 100 lists. And yeah, I've been completely burnt out. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I meant to ask you, following on the heels of all the greatest wrestler ever stuff, where would you rank the Star Trek characters in Big Laugh? <laughs> uh, Picard's number one. I go by the emotional uh, scale in Picard's number one, always. But you know, I did a pro wrestling super show, the first one back since the greatest wrestler ever, um, with Tim Livingston, of course, and uh, Devin Hales. We kind of made a current World Cup of Wrestling. We picked teams from uh, five or six countries, and we did a tournament to see which country had the best wrestling, basically. So you can uh, check out that. That came out a little while ago. Um, probably between work and, uh, and the greatest wrestler really took it out of me. So maybe going into July, uh, it might ramp it up again. But yeah, there's that. And on social media. You can follow me on Twitter, Stephen Graham TWS, Stephen with a V, Graham like the cracker, and TWS is like the wrestler snapshot, which is a thing that still happens from time to time. All right, great. Well, as we are losing you a little bit, I think we will get out of here. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen, for coming on. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. We will be back in two weeks' time with the 2009 Star Trek movie. We will see you then. Nobody needs me. He needs your blood to live. I do. I need you.